Welcome to The Big Picture, a show that takes a deep dive into the political landscape of not only America, but right here in our own backyard of Illinois. It's showtime, folks. The Big Picture is on WCPT 820. And now, here's your host, Edwin Eisentrath. Doesn't really sound like him, does it? I couldn't fool you for a second, could I? Um, Edwin's taking some time off because it's, you know, that weekend. That weekend, the gratitude weekend. That's what I like to think of it as. No matter the politics of it for you, I just like to think that we've taken aside a weekend in this country to just be grateful. That's so important. You're going to meet somebody in a moment. Oh, who am I, aren't I? I should introduce myself. Touri Ryder, and that's spelled with a U, Ryder, like the truck. And you may have heard me in for Joan once or twice when she's had a day or two off. And I am happy to be here filling in for Mr. Eisendrath. My honor, my pleasure. And we'll get to talk in a little bit. But if you lived in my neighborhood where I used to live, on this really... Uh, relaxed weekend for so many people. If if you lived where I used to live, you would have been right near a section called the track. And in this section of the city where I lived, as you came and went to the airport to do business, to get to the Home Depot, you would see several blocks of young women attired minimally, no matter the weather, little booty shorts, sometimes just lingerie, high, high heels, soliciting customers, especially on these holiday weekends. It seemed like the holiday weekends, and maybe I just noticed it more because that was my mindset of this is for family, and I'd be going to pick people up at the airport or drop people off at the airport. You would have seen these little girls and you would have thought, this is a tragedy. They are not with their families. They are not with anyone who cares about them. Instead, they are walking the track to service men who pull up in their cars, pull up in their vans, in they get, possibly for the last time in ride of their lives. They don't know. They don't know how it will go. And if you had driven that street the way that I drove that street, it would be all you could do not to just... Open up the doors of your car and just start collecting these girls. Girls. They were little girls, some of them. Some a little older. You would have wanted to take each and every one of them home with you and put them in some clothes that kept them warm and ask them, what can I do for you? How can I help you? What is it that we need to be doing So that you don't find yourself walking around in five-inch heels and a G-string on Thanksgiving weekend, getting into the cars of strangers, watched by some pimp who will beat you up if you don't bring in enough money. How can we extract you from this really horrific situation? And that's not to say that there aren't women who work 
in the industry who feel empowered, who feel safe, who feel in control, who feel like this is this is their path to financial security. I know there are those women, but I'm pretty darn sure that those women are not out in freezing cold temperatures on Thanksgiving weekend, watched by some guy who's going to beat the living daylights out of them if they don't do and produce and bring in a certain amount of money. And by the way, these particular girls were moved from city to city to city. And one of the great achievements in the time that I lived near this neighborhood was that finally they stopped treating these girls like they were criminals and started arresting the guys. So I thought that you should meet someone who was not one of those little, little girls, but who certainly knows a thing or two about the sex industry. She is an author. Full disclosure, she has the same publisher I do, which is how I met her. She is a strong woman who came through a really, I mean, beyond difficult experience, a series of them. And has created a book called Strip, which you should read if you want to know how it comes to pass that the most expedient and obvious way that you can support yourself is by trading your body for money. Hannah Sward, welcome to WCPT. Uh, Terry, thank you so much. Well, it's my pleasure. It's my pleasure. And I'm so glad that I can I can say when I introduce you that you have the insight and you have and you have made a path for yourself that actually puts something takes something horrible and damaging and makes something beautiful and inspiring out of it. Thank you so much. I never would have never would have imagined uh been a great gift. Well, it's been a gift to us to read about it. So I'm pretty sure you heard what I just said about these little girls. And I'm pretty sure that you uh, and I've heard you speak. But I think it was interesting and telling that when I heard you speak at Printer's Row Lit Fest this year, a gentleman got up and despite what he had heard from you and the other women on the panel, his assumption was that you became a sex worker uh, in Chicago to support a drug habit. And and all the whole panel almost got up and yelled at him because he hadn't heard what you were saying. What what in your mind was the thing that made you value your body in this way? Uh, to value my body in, oh, you mean what, what brought me to it? Or yeah, what? what made you feel like the thing that I can trade on here is my beautiful body? What made you feel like that was a good use for it? Desperation. And I, think, I mean, I think I had already thrown away myself. And this was an act of that that felt it it uh it just felt like the easiest fastest way to to make money uh, and I felt like I had already I mean and I had already thrown myself away so it didn't feel like the biggest leap um, and I do of course remember that gen that gen I wouldn't call him a gentleman that man. And that was really disturbing because I hadn't, uh, I, I came into the business, the business, the industry at 19. I had just turned about nine, yeah, 19 and I, yeah, had never done drugs before. 
So you talked about having thrown yourself away. And in a moment, I'm going to have you read the day that you made the decision that you could earn money as a sex worker. You cite in the pages I'm going to ask you to read, you talk about a brown car. And I'm assuming that this is part of your path to having thrown yourself away. Could you could you talk a little bit about what you mean when you speak of the brown car and the trauma that you experienced that, that I'm guessing is what you mean by throwing part of yourself away? Yes. Uh, when I was six years old, I was living in Victoria, British Columbia, and I was in a park uh, alone. That's what I remember. And I, I my my most distinct memory is the pink and white checkered shorts I was wearing and I had this doll and I was swinging on the swing and a man in a brown car had pulled up and asked, uh, you know, way for me to come to it. And I, you know, kept swinging, but after a little while I did, I did go into that car Uh, and he took me in that car and said, uh, he drove around for a little while and asked if I knew how babies were born, and I did not. And he took down my shorts and uh, and he said that if he, if I told anyone what, what was, you know, that he would kill me. And he said that several times. And I was very fortunate in that uh, at the end of that same day, I was dropped back off at the park. And I don't know why I got to live that day. And uh, and the police did come and we looked for him, which scared me all the more, of course, because I thought then he'd come and kill me. Yeah. Um, and what also happened was, uh, you know, I got in trouble for that. So there was the internalization, I had done something wrong. And my voice, there were other things that happened in my life after that with a bad, you know, with a babysitter that was uh, not, you know, a a male babysitter that was nine. And I felt, uh, I I think I really disconnected from myself at that point. Well, that would be a reasonable survival tool, I would think. And the same way that when you see these girls out on the street in Chicago in some neighborhoods or where I used to live, you think to yourself, or I don't know if you do, but I would imagine you do, someone has really harmed you and you cannot possibly be aware of the danger really that you're in out here in the freezing cold in six inch heels and a a little, you know, fur tube top and a G string. You cannot really know what you're risking here, but it, it, to hear you tell it to have already thrown yourself away. I suppose you're out there and you're thinking what difference who would really care? Yeah. Yeah. It, I think so. That's it. That's right. And and speaking to the danger, I, I don't recall feeling too scared either. And I wasn't out on the tracks and I wasn't a, a little girl. However, at 19, going into hotels or looking in the back of uh, the Chicago Tribune in the section that I'm going to read and meeting a man that, uh, you know, to interview, I, I would suppose he's called a pimp. Even now, it's hard to say that. Uh, was 
I don't remember being too scared. Well, that's a good opportunity for you to read, I guess, the, the story of how you made your decision. And when you hear Hannah read, you're going to hear the rhythm of her writing, which is just gorgeous. So would you read about how that happened to you? I will. I will. So this is about a quarter of the way into the book called Strip. This chapter is called Blow Up Girls, Spring 1989, Chicago. When I arrived in Chicago, the film my friend had a part in had put her up in a 23rd floor apartment on State Street near the water tower. It came furnished with hotel lamps, beige curtains, crystal chandeliers, white carpet, and a sunken living room that I slept in. We ate Cobb salads five nights a week in a diner with brown vinyl booths below the high-rise. The other two nights, we ate Chicago burgers and drank laxative Lacey LeBeau tea. We'd wake up with stomach cakes in the night and swear no more burgers or Lacey. We rented movies and went to our first peep show next to the video store across the street from Mickey's Blues. Blow-up dolls in the window with blonde hair and checkered miniskirts in knee-highs. Brunettes with cherry red lips and black vinyl thigh-high boots. We walked by the blow-up girls every night that we rented a movie. Us staring at them, them staring at us, waiting to be bought. The dolls made us feel fat and sad. I got a job at 24-Hour Fitness, the 5 a.m. shift checking people in. I stood there in a uniform of white nylon shirt and shiny blue spandex leggings lasted three days. On the last day, I went home at lunch, made a tuna sandwich, and never went back. I spread the Chicago Tribune out on the table and turned to the classified section. Hostess at pizzeria, typist at law firm, caregiver. I thought of my first job back when I was nine, cleaning houses on on Algonquin Island. A neighbor in his navy blue Hanes underwear on the floor, folding and putting them in his drawer, cleaning his sink and toilet with Ajax, finding quarters and putting them in my pockets. I turned the page to adult classified section, escorts wanted, earned $300 an hour. I got up and opened another can of tuna. I wondered what that would be like to be an escort. I had already been with men I didn't want to be with for no money. Only a couple, but that was enough. When it happened, something in me froze. I wanted to say no, but I couldn't. I didn't feel like I had a choice. If I were an escort, it would be my choice. Maybe I could do it just for a couple months, and then that's it. Get some money together for tuition and rent and stop. I wondered how other girls made their money the ones that didn't have parents that gave it to them while they were building their lives. They must have worked 40, 60 hours a week waitressing this summer before college, maybe even two jobs, cocktail waitressing at night and during the day standing at the front desk at 24-hour fitness in spandex, checking people in like I had done for three days. I couldn't waitress. I was no good at it. And the spandex job paid $8 an hour. Maybe the girls who waitress hadn't met any men in brown cars or had a guy babysitter. 
Maybe if there never was a brown car man or babysitter, I never would have looked at the adult classified section. I threw the second can of tuna out and picked up the phone. That's a beautiful, I think, that's the path. I think you just laid it all out there in a few minutes of how it happens. And that's Hannah Sword reading from her book, Strip, from Tortoise Books. Full disclosure, same publisher I have, which is how I met her. Um, If you would be willing to hang around for a few minutes, we'll talk a little bit about uh, what you see as the meaningful things that we could be doing for little girls, adult girls. And I also really, God, adult girls, listen to me. Well, I think actually some of them are adult girls in a way. They get kind of frozen. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Let's talk some more about that. And also, I'm curious to know um, in a moment what you think of the women who do this work and feel or say that they feel uh, really proud and empowered of it and by it in in just a moment. You're listening to WCPT Radio, Chicago's Progressive Talk. I'm Turi Ryder, in for Edwin Eisendrath, my guest, Hannah Sward, author of Strip. And we'll talk a little bit more about the trafficking industry on this holiday weekend as you drive around. And people are doing what they're doing with their family. Keep an eye open. There are there are people on the streets you might not realize have no place else to be. You're listening to The Big Picture with Edwin Eisendrath on WCPT 820. It is Edwin Eisendrath's show. I am Turi with you, writer like the truck. And we are joined by Hannah Sward, author of a book called Strip, about her life as a, I don't know, how would you just, if you had like just one phrase to describe your life, Hannah, how would you describe it? I, I pick strong survivor, but what do you pick? I'll go with that. I, I like that. I, yeah. Strong survivor. Start, she had the parents who were like... Uh, your dad was a famous poet, recently passed away, famous writer, um, had a series of marriages. Your mother was kind of the hippie artist, had a series of unfortunate men. I hope I'm not getting this too far wrong. Um, and you and you found yourself on a path that most people, I think, would find unimaginable. But more people than you would realize have these have these childhoods where it it looks like it should be better than it's going um right so you you had a you had you were taken as a child um and terrible things happened uh and you survived it and then you had a babysitter the thing that i got and i want to ask you what what we should be doing to to keep these young women uh out of harm's way the thing that hit me from reading your book strip is how nobody listened to you. Like people just, you were beautiful, you were a dancer, you were accomplished, but over and over, I just wanted to shake everybody in your book and go, you're not paying attention to the girl. You're not listening to her. Um, and so this this book, um, in a way, makes us listen. Um, how, do, how do you, how, what do you think when you see the girls, you know, out working and what do you think when you hear the women who often uh, speak about how proud they are and how empowered they feel about working in the sex industry? Mm, I love, well, one, I love your insights and your take on the book, and uh, com- especially coming from you as a fellow author. And uh, thank you. Yeah, <laughs> everything I know about you. I, well, one, 
what you're speaking to with the voice and not having a voice, I think this right here, right now, talking about it, bringing it to awareness, I, the time that it happened in the, you know, in the seventies, there was definitely less awareness than there is now. I mean, there was no such thing as, for example, Amber Alert or, uh, you know, it's hard to go into an airport bathroom, for example, without, uh, I I see so many signs for for sex trafficking and and, and, uh, just a whole other awareness. I think the growing awareness, I think, wow. How did that happen, do you suppose? Is it like Oprah and back in the day Donahue and all of the cable show? I mean, what do you suppose made people aware of it's been going on mm-hmm. always? If you, I mean, I have friends yeah. my age and older who will tell you, you know, there was a grandfather, there was an uncle, there was a, how, yeah. what changed it so that people were willing to do what we're doing here and talk about it? Wow. I, I wish I knew. I mean, Hmm. I'm. I wish I had a, an answer. I think. I think people talking about it more. Women continuing to talk. Men as well. Uh, stories. Uh, I think therapy. I think. I mean, that sounds like such a luxury at that point, but I think, I mean, for example, I don't, you know, therapy wasn't quite, you know, as big then. Yeah, that's a good one. I I was just, as you were speaking, I was thinking, well, where else have I seen this conversation? And it occurs to me that as as horrible as social media can be for little girls who are tricked by these older guys usually or little boys who are sometimes tricked by older guys usually, I've also noticed, and I'll bet you've noticed, there are a number of people um, tweeting and posting under the hashtag of survivor and was trafficked. Yeah. And I'm, I'm wondering if social media is also a path where people can come forward and say, you know, this happened to me. This was the damage. I survived it. You can get in touch with me if you need mm-hmm. help or support. Have you noticed that at all? I have, yeah. I, in, in the time that I've been a writer, uh, I was—I remember writing for different, um, you know, different articles over the years. And as social media became more, I did have more people, more women reach out to me. And I think because there was a privacy in that, and it was one-on-one, hmm. you know, they 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 direct message me and I didn't know, you know, I mean, I didn't know anything about them. They, but they, I've had women reach out and talk about it and say, like, are you willing to talk with me about this? And that having a conversation, I mean, that's what one, that's like probably the single greatest thing that's helped me is the conversation about it, knowing that you're not alone. And it sounds so cliche, but it's, so true. I suppose right? that's true. When you when you meet someone, it's so much easier sometimes to see the virtue in someone else. And you may have right. felt like this was somehow my fault. I was dirty. I was wrong. I was not good enough. I'm to blame. But when you talk to somebody else, it's really clear 
and they are expressing those same feelings that no, there was nothing wrong with you. No, you did you did nothing wrong. You didn't deserve any of that. And I guess sometimes if you can extend that compassion to someone else, it then becomes after a while a little easier, I would guess, to extend that same compassion to yourself. I think so. I think that's such a great point. I, I even in the writing groups that I've been, I remember when I was uh, first writing about this, I was so disconnected from what happened that it was in speaking about it out loud and seeing uh, the other women in the group's uh, response to it that made me be like, oh, this is, this is real because I couldn't feel it. I was so, like I said, disconnected from, from it. And it felt, the other thing is I would diminish it, be like, oh, my God, so many other young girls have had it so much worse. Well, I heard right. you do a little smidgen where you said, well, thank, I don't know why I'm, I'm lucky I got returned to the park. And that's true. But, you know, e- even in the trauma, you, you're saying, well, you know, other people had it worse. Well, other people are. I hear you say that. And I think, well, other yeah. people are irrelevant in this telling right now, this story. So when you hear yeah. uh, women who are advocating for rights for sex workers and uh, they're talking about, you know, they, they love working in porn. They're proud to work in porn. They love working in, you know. Know, what, what do you think? Because I think I'm a little bit overly judgmental when I hear these women. I'll just confess right now. When I hear these women talk about how, you know, how great it is, how much money they make, how satisfied they are, how, you know, they wouldn't do anything else. I think to myself, really, well, are you going to tell your children right away what you do about it? Because most other careers, you wouldn't have a problem saying, you know, Mom's a, a mom works in a factory. Mom's a dentist. Mom's a house cleaner. But uh, you know, if that's if if you're so darn proud, what do you do on take your daughter to work day? That's my first thought, and my second yeah, thought yeah. is, um, I can't imagine any little girl who wakes up in the morning and thinks, what I really want to do with my life is have right, men right. I've never met before. <laughs> have sexual relations with me for money. That's my goal. That's, you know, if everything goes great, I'm going to do that. Um, right. And so that's the cynical me. I mean, it's kind of a not very nice way of putting it. But I, I guess the short answer is I hear these women and I don't believe them. Should you believe them? Should Do you believe them? I, I believe them as in as much as they believe it. I think it's uh, I've never felt empowered. And although I wrote that in the book, that at least I would have a choice, I don't even know if I believe that now as I was reading that because uh, I had finished that five years ago and I've you know, had more therapy since then. And I, I mean, I, I, yeah, I never felt empowered. And I, same with stripping, I hear that, especially in, well, in, in stripping, right? You have that, the, the power, people would often say, oh, you have that, you felt the power, you gain, regained the power back as men looking at you. Not for me, I did not feel that. As far as women advocating for it, and, wow, oh, God, that's so hard to hurry because I think about where they've maybe come from uh, as well, and... There's just, there's, it's so, it goes, there's so many layers to it, right? 
So you're uh, saying it's like it, it may be relative. It may be more power for those who, who most people, I guess, haven't yet had the pleasure of your book. Uh, Hannah also stripped in L.A. for a while with her sister, interestingly enough. And and your sister, you report, was was more comfortable with this. And you would go at, when you were off stage and weep. You were the, the you, yeah. you had this great line like nobody wants a crying stripper. I just thought that was <laughs> yeah. it's what I love about your book. Yeah. You find the humor even in the in the difficult parts. Um, mm-hmm. But but if your if your childhood or has been um, particularly damaging and you were abused and someone told you you were ugly and undeserving and that's why you were being treated that way, for example, um, which I've heard some women report, I suppose then that working in a strip club would would be an improvement over that. Right. Right. And for me, it was an improvement in the sense of when I came to L.A. and I moved from Chicago, I I got back into uh, being a call girl prostitute. Uh, and when that became too much, I stepped up in a sense and joined my sister as a stripper, which was a step up. So for you, see, because... That's so interesting. What I often hear is people start as strippers because they think, well, I don't actually have to go anywhere with anybody or do anything with anybody. I will have I'll be on this stage. There are people watching out for me. The most I have to do is go into a little back room for a little while. It's not so bad. I don't have to leave or go anywhere. And then the money or whatever happens next takes them in the opposite direction where you started from being an escort and then you felt safer stripping. They start stripping and then they move to um, out call. Yeah, that's such a great point. I will. One, I got to be with my sister. And when I was doing the call girl stuff, I was I was alone and I felt I felt hidden and I felt in the shame of doing it, nobody knew except me and the man. And maybe the other girls that were waiting on the couch, well, not maybe, they, the other girls waiting on the couch, waiting for the call, waiting for them to fit the description of whatever man was calling or whatever couple. Uh, Could you explain so- the, the physical setup of that just briefly so that people will understand what you mean when you say we were sitting on the couch? Could you Could you describe that a little? Of course, yeah. So when I first started in Chicago, I remember taking the train. I don't know where I went. I was new to Chicago. I took the train and I met a man in a, a Italian restaurant, and we sat in a booth. And uh, uh, so from there, I'll just read these two lines that will that will uh, <laughs> that this those will capture it. After coffee and garlic bread, we walked across the street to his office apartment. There was a velour zebra on the wall. <laughs> Three girls sat on a green, on a jungle green fake leather couch underneath the zebra with their eight legs crossed, eating bologna sandwiches. Another one sat on the floor, filing her nails. They didn't acknowledge us as we walked in. I followed Mr. Sam to the back office. And then there's a, a few lines, and then it goes, Two nights later, I was sitting on the jungle couch with the other girls, eating bologna sandwiches on a whole wheat with yellow mustard. Yeah, and, that's and, uh, amazing. Mr. Sam, Mr. Sam would, you know, get the calls, and at the time I had red hair, and 
I didn't need a redhead. So off I would go. And so aside from those other girls on the couch eating bologna sandwiches, it was maybe like 10 of us, maybe eight. Uh, nobody knew. And I liked it that way. Even when I was stripping, I liked, or not, I wouldn't say liked, I felt more comfortable. I never stripped on stage, which was somewhat unusual because, well, I don't ever, I haven't, none of the girls at the strip club did that. They all stripped on stage, but I felt more comfortable doing the private dances or the lap dances. Again, private, right? Not up there for everyone to see. Huh. So I don't know if that circles back to your question in some way of how uh, the, the hiding and the private part of it, I felt that was where... You know, it wasn't out there for all to see. So you felt safer because the the whole thing was knowledge, who knew and who didn't know, and you could control that part of it. Right. Well, right. speaking of knowledge, um, and I, I still want to hear from you, like, what, what do you... What do you think when you see the girls out on the track and what do you want to do with them and for oh. them? And could you answer that one for me? Because I go crazy. I just go crazy when I see it. Well, I feel the same as you. I just want to uh, collect them all. Yeah. Yeah. And and how do you think that would go? Because what I've heard from um, people who do counseling and outreach in the city where the track is located that I used to live near they're they're like they're not ready till they're ready and you can try and you can offer them but there's usually a girl in the halfway house that's recruiting for a pimp there's usually somebody there who even if they're trying to make an exit is actively working against them right but I think I mean for example for for myself I mean I, I just feel like I was so broken down that I I hear what you're saying with, you know, being ready until you're ready. It would take so much, right? Like the, the shelter, the, the comfort, the care, like a whole, offering them a whole way out, which is really huge, right? Like how do you offer someone a whole way out? In the book, and I have... I have a guilt about this and I'm almost hesitant to share this part, but it is in the book where I'm going to my drug dealers and I, you know, there's a, a number of times I mentioned these young girls, these little girls or like six years old at the drug dealer's house. And it looks really like it just it brings shivers to my arms now because you just know that they're, that they're headed. Like it's, they have no chance. Right. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So what am I going to do? Like, go back and get those little girls? Or at the time, I mean, I was you know, not living a, a lifestyle that I, well, well, even then, I wanted to rescue them. But what do you do? Yeah. Like, you, how do you provide a whole childhood for someone after they've already missed one? Right. I, right. I just, I mean, we all like to think, I don't know about we all, but I, I personally... I, I think that I would like to believe that somehow I have this magic power that I could somehow uh, I will tell you a story. And then um, I, I don't usually tell this story, but I'm going to tell it <clears throat> in this town where I live. There was a park 
and uh, very close to our house. We lived in what was politely called a transitional neighborhood, which means we had to dig bullets out of our house on a regular basis. And there was a park nearby. And one Christmas day, uh, the spousal unit and the two kids were at the park. And the park closed at sundown. And they came to lock the gate. And there was this little two-year-old kid um, by himself. And the spouse kept thinking, oh, somebody will come get the kids. Somebody will come and he's watching. He's not leaving. Nobody's coming. Um, and finally, it's dark. They're locking up. He scoops up the kid, brings the kid home, calls 911 and says, I found this kid abandoned at the park. Interestingly, even though this city had a lot of problems with money and funding and law enforcement, on Christmas Day, we had police cars from, I think, Five different agencies. We had park police and forest service police and city police and sheriffs. I mean, there's just and this is a little bit of a digression. But I think most people who go into law enforcement go into law enforcement because they want to help. Whatever happens to them later. I think the idea of of a two year old child abandoned in a cold park and the kids like wearing a diaper and a little shirt. So we take the kid upstairs. We 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 find the old clothes. We bundle him up. We change his diaper. We wait. And the cops are going door to door through the whole neighborhood. And they come back to my door. I'll never forget her name. She was a rookie. That's why she was working Christmas Day. Officer Batty, bless her heart. She shows up with the boyfriend of the grandmother, who was way younger than we were. The mother's in jail. You can figure out how and why. Uh, the grandmother yeah. has has let the little kid, the the child, go to the park with an uncle, the brother of the mother in jail, who's maybe, I don't know, 15. And the kid gets distracted. You can figure out why and just leaves the kid at the park. Oh, my God. I, I know. Meanwhile, we've got the kid, you know, all warm. He's playing with the dog. We're putting him on a rocking horse. Up shows the boyfriend. And you can just see in his face what we look like to him. We're the rich white people on the hill with the house and the, you know, and the dog and the, and the fun toys. And I, I, I have to hand this kid over. And the kid glues himself to me. Just oh like Velcro. And I look at the officer baddie. I look at her and she says, you have no choice. She knew. I was like, not going to look. So I, I peel the kid away as gently oh as I can. And I hand him over to this, quote, close, quote, boyfriend who's seething with fury and not too happy to take the kid. And, oh. and as he leaves, I look at the police officers, like five of them standing in my house. And I say, is there anything I can do? And they all say, almost like a chorus, no. So I'm completely unhinged by this and I call my father who was orphaned very young and I explain what's just happened and my father from somewhere in the depths of his abused orphaned childhood says the following he says how old was he I said I don't know maybe two or three and he said if you can get him out of there by the time they're two or three there's a chance after that Mm -hmm. it's almost impossible and I mean, if to your point, you know, you see these six-year-old kids in these places or these girls out on the street, it's almost impossible. And yet, here you are, the possible. You, 
Yeah. And you speak about, and, and I want to make sure that people understand, you are a recovered drug user, um, a recovering addict, um, and that came after. Um, you want to talk about at all how that, you know, how that one segued into the other? Are you comfortable with that? Yeah, absolutely. I, yeah, the whole time I was being, uh, that I was in prostitution, I, I was, I did drugs once with a couple. Uh, and I remember I went to, it was cocaine, first time in Chicago, 19, and I was living on the State Street, um, right near the water tower. Does that make sense? Yeah, near it, sure, absolutely. Just a little bit west of there you would have been. And it was, I was in the high rise, and I didn't want to jump out of the you know, 23rd floor because I just, like, I just react well to the drugs. Yeah, and probably the I drugs, think, yeah. Probably, yeah, probably the drugs. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, just I had been involved, you know, and also on top of being involved in something, I so yeah, that that uh, is a whole, that's in the book. Usually, if you're not uh, on the drugs, you figure out you can walk out the door, but on the drugs, the window looks better. Sometimes. Right. Right. <laughs> exactly. Sometimes. Yeah. And it's, it's a long night. Uh, yeah. I I think the drugs, I didn't start drugs until relatively late. I did start them when I was stripping and I was at that point 24 and my sister and I wanted to lose weight. So we decided that we would talk to this stripper called Athena who uh, looked fabulous. And she turned us on to crystal meth. And I didn't really get heavily involved in though until I was done. I was uh, stripping and call girl was behind me and I was in my later 20s. Well, you've uh, just you've just blown up most people's idea of how this all goes, you know. This is because there's an there, there's a set you know what we always see while they're drug addicts and they do these things to support their drug addict habit and you just blew that right up. Yeah, yeah, yes, I did. Yeah, and had I been doing drugs, I maybe may I may not have gotten out when I did. Interesting. Right? And then cut to I'm thirty nine and. I had got out of that industry, so to speak. I think I was about 26, 27 uh, after stripping, and that had, that took a while to to extricate myself from that. And I went back into that uh, line of work when I was 39. And at that point, I was drinking, and thank God it didn't last too long. But that was my solution again. The easiest solution for you was to just use the body that you had. I have a quick question for you, which maybe you will um, want to answer after we take our, our little pause here. But you mentioned it was the privacy and nobody knowing that was mm-hmm. um, part of what allowed you to do. My theory would be that at that point you'd given up on anybody knowing even if you told them to their faces, they were not listening. But right. later on, when you were in well in your recovery... Um, I'm curious to know what kind of conversation you may have had 
with the people who didn't listen the first time around and if that went any better or any worse. You're listening to Hannah Sward. She is the author of a book called Strip from Tortoise Books. If you want to read it, you can buy it anywhere. Um, ask your neighborhood independent bookseller to get it for you. Or I'm a big one on libraries. Ask your library to buy it and you can get it from the library too. That's equal opportunity literacy in my opinion. It is the Edwin Eisendrath Show. I'm Turi with you, writer like the Chuck. And for Edwin, more from Hannah in just a moment. This is WCPT 820, where facts matter. You're listening to The Big Picture with Edwin Eisendraft on WCPT 820. It is Edwin Eisendraft's show. I'm Turi with you, writer like the Chuck, talking with Hannah Sward, who first started working in the sex industry as an escort in Chicago. I picked this for today because this is a weekend when if you drive around, people are doing other things. It's a holiday weekend for many, and you may see people on the street who look like they maybe are, you know, what are these little girls doing out there? I used to see them on um, the holidays all the time, and it made me want to talk to Hannah, whose book Strip is out and available. And uh, we've been talking about her life as an escort in Chicago and elsewhere uh, and and what it's like for some of the younger people and uh, what we can do to support them if they want to leave is what I want to ask her about next. Coming up in the next hour, uh, whether you live in the Proviso School District or not, you're probably wondering what the heck is going on. They've got strike labor stuff that seems to be going on forever. Uh, we will be speaking with somebody from the union there, someone who teaches there, get a little bit of background and insight on why exactly the Proviso School District seems to be just sort of falling apart for those kids. Really tough on them. Hana, thanks for hanging on with me. Thank you, Terry. Thank you. It's uh, it's, so when so we're 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 up to the point here, I guess, where you've you've exited, you've made a quick, you come in and out of the the sex industry as an escort, as a stripper. Um, but when you get clean and sober, and you start writing your book, which is really telling your story, and I I happen to know uh, because we share a publisher that your dad, a famous poet, passed away before your book came out. Shortly before that. But they didn't really listen to you when you were little and you were first abducted. Um, did you have an opportunity at some point to really tell them what had happened to you? And did you have an opportunity to ask them why they didn't listen? I had, I have, I did talk to my father. Uh, we were in, a, he was visiting me in L.A. and I took him to a therapy session, uh, which he was always you know, beyond supportive of. And I asked him in that session, uh, I said, you know, Dad, why wasn't it talked about? Like, I, why, uh, like, what happened? And uh, he said that he did, that he did bring me to the hospital. I have no memory of that. And that the doctor had examined me and said nothing happened. No. Yeah. So in that sense, I think there is more awareness this day. I don't know if doctors would do that. Maybe they would. I hope not. Uh, And that's a very big generalization because maybe I'm sure some would, some wouldn't. I don't know. Every time I hear your story, I just get angrier at all the people who don't listen. I just every time you you run into these people who don't listen to children. I mean, look, children can sometimes exaggerate. Children can sometimes be wrong. But I don't think too many people are going to make up what happened to you. Right. Right. And 
I mean, I really struggled in school after that. I mean, I would fail second grade. Who failed second grade? I mean, <laughs> if I was like, you know, I mean, it's like wow. it's true that now that you mention it, there's really not a lot to second grade, is there? My brother, you know, same thing happened. He got, he also got, you know, uh, things happened to him in his childhood, and he failed second, first grade. But I digress. Uh, I. So when you're with with your father at this session, so he's sort of defending his behavior and, 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 and honestly seems to believe that he did what he should have done. And then what happens? Right. Did you did? I mean, do you, if I were if I were a, if I could make a sock puppet out of you, Hannah, the sock puppet of Hannah would say, oh, really? Well, then how do you explain my behavior after that? <laughs> right. Right. I, well, I did, you know, I had nightmares and in the book I described going into labor position and I'm six and I think I'm having a baby. I don't know how they're made, but you know, some man kind of showed me I didn't understand. Uh, I just remember thinking it was like a floppy fish that had some white stuff coming out. I mean, this is maybe getting too graphic for the radio. I think, well, that as long as we stop there, that's probably, I mean, in the context, I think we are clear. Yeah. (laughs) So, so, so what did your father say when you explained all this to him? He, I think we just ended there. Oh boy. Well, thank goodness for your writing group and thank goodness that you were able to find the support that you needed to, to put this book out there. Now that the book is out, it's been out, what, not quite a year, I guess. How long? Uh, Two, actually, two and a half months. Oh, really less than a year. Uh, what, I mean, can you, how does it feel now that the book is in the world? How does your story feel to you now? It, uh, I think the hardest part has been with my mom and my stepmom. My mom didn't know about this. She, I wasn't, you know, I didn't grow up with her in the same house, and only in the summers. And she... I didn't realize that she didn't know about any of this. And my stepmother just, oh, 10, 10, week, 10 days, uh, two weeks ago, I received a letter from her. She lives in Newfoundland acknowledging this because uh, she had read the book. And I haven't talked to her because it's only been so recent. Uh, however, seeing that word in the letter, handwritten letter, the, the word responsible, taking responsibility, Shocking. She took responsibility and for not not protecting you and not listening to you is what you're saying in this letter. Boy, this is kind of strange, but it's really hard to read her handwriting. It's like all written on the sides. It looks like it's you know been smudged. But I saw the word responsibility in childhood, so there was something about that. Wow. And I'm taking that as a, as a uh, positive uh, thing, and. Um, I also this is this is jumping, but I want to circle back to just what or not circle back. I I want to get this in that this is incredible that I get to do this on Thanksgiving weekend because my last not sober Thanksgiving weekend thirteen years ago was spent uh, at a place called Swingers with my sister interviewing a man to be. Uh, dominatrix foot fetish sisters 
come full circle 13 years later. Well, I'm glad things are are better now. I would I would I would call that in in the parlance of today. I'd call that a win, Hannah. Here you here you sit with your shoes on, and you don't have to to submit or dominate anybody at all. You'll just go out there and talk about your book and keep writing. At least I hope you will. Thank you so much for being with us. That's Hannah. Her book strip is available now. If you want to know what goes on in Chicago while you're not paying attention, this is one thing you should know about. WCPT Radio. You're listening to The Big Picture with Edwin Eisentraff on WCPT 820. I got... You are listening to Edwin Eisendrath's show. I'm Tory Ryder in for Edwin. He has the weekend off. It is a pleasure to be with you. Um, you may or may not have kids in the Chicago area schools, um, but even so... It's important for everybody's kids, I think we can agree, to get a good education. And something's been happening in the Proviso School District that has been going on, I guess, for about a year and a half now. And it looks like chaos over there. I mean, it just looks scary. And I can't imagine that if you're a parent or all of us were students once, I can't imagine you would wish this on anybody's kids, that they would show up in a school and maybe there'd be a teacher and maybe not, and maybe the bus would come and maybe not, and the teachers seem to be treated, as far as I can tell from the news accounts and from talking to people, like disposable meat, Um, and this is not the way we should be treating our teachers or our staff or our kids, and so I wanted to get some kind of clarity on what's exactly going on. Joining me now, uh, Dr. John Wardesani, am I pronouncing that right or no? Yes, that's correct. Wardesani, and and would you give me, because I mess up people's titles all the time, would you tell me exactly your union title, what you do, so I don't screw it up? Do it for me. Do uh, Make me lazy. Of course. Of course. So I, I am the Proviso Teachers Union president. The president uh, of the yeah. Teachers Union, which is, it's correct. its own union, right? Yes, it is. How many members? I mean, I mean uh, 300 members. Okay. Can you can you roll this back to when this whole thing started? I'm I'm guessing maybe when you got a new superintendent, or is that when the trouble began, or what happened? Well, I think uh, earnestly, um, a lot of our issues began with with COVID, and when COVID occurred, um, you know, I think part of our initial issues were with the uh, with the school board and the superintendent was our agreement to what hybrid would look like and what instruction would look like for students. Okay. And so we, we had some issues with, you know, what does that look like and how does that best serve kids? Um, and I think it was one of our initial stumbling blocks uh, with the uh, with the superintendent. Um, once we kind of emerged from COVID and we were moving from a seven-period day to an eight-period day in, in two of our three schools, um, you know, the... the was, in my opinion, a lack of strategic planning. So we had schools that, you know, they wanted to provide additional courses but didn't have the staff to support them. In light of, you know, uh, unprecedented resignations, um, I believe, if I, my numbers serve me correctly, I think it was close to 60 teachers resigned, um, you know, um, through the end of the last academic year, you know, through this year. Let, so let me pause you. Let me pause you. What do the teachers say 
when they leave to you about why they're leaving? What's their biggest reason that they're leaving? Oh, but by far the largest the, the largest reason for their departure is their their feeling of lack of support from the school board and from the superintendent. Okay, so yeah. it's not it's not just the money; it's that they they are not get, what does support look like to them um, that they're not getting. Well, that would include things like resources, um, class sizes, um, access to materials, um, specifically instructional materials. I mean, you know, it, it's very it's very clear that you know teachers aren't teaching for the money. Right? There's there's no money in teaching. Um, teachers are there because they they truly want to serve the community um, that they live in. Um, they want to serve the kids that they've been entrusted to. Um, and when you don't have those fundamental support pieces in place. It's very difficult to do do the job effectively on top of, you know, the constant chaos of, you know, of changing class sizes, of, uh, of uh, you know, gaps in programming, uh, staffing. I mean, there, so there's, it's this perfect storm where you have, you know, you have a lot of kids, you know, essentially almost 5,000 kids in the township, you know, who are desperately in need of service. And then you have, you know, cutting the staff and cutting the resources um, and, and giving teachers kind of the Herculean task of trying to make things work in a climate that honestly is, is broken. For OK, so let me stop you again. You say now that not only are they not building out resources for these kids, they're cutting them. What are they cutting? And also, while, while you're at it, could you describe a little bit the what the student body at Proviso looks like? I'm the parent of two City of Chicago high school graduates, so I know what that student body looks like. And I attended high school north of the city, so I could kind of tell you what that student body looks like. But Proviso's out of my beat. So what? who are those students and what were the resources that vanished? Okay, so well, there's two parts of that. One is the Proviso Township is roughly, uh, you know, 35% African-American, um, you know, almost 50% Hispanic. Actually, no, I take that back. I mean, uh, it's really 95% black and brown students that we serve in Proviso Township. Um, some of those resources that um, that have been kind of taken away are are things like special education or special education resources, um, English language learning resources. Um, you know, obviously class sizes are a significant barrier to instruction. Well, we know that when you have a class size that's well over thirty, um, it, obviously effective instruction definitely is hampered. Especially, I mean, for me specifically because I teach science, um, specifically in science classes. So when you have when you have um, you know some of these missing resource pieces, you know, technology is another one where um, the technology departments in all three schools have been radically cut, um, provide or limiting kids' resources to technology or effective use of technology in, in those buildings. You know, they're on top of again, as I mentioned, the kind of cuts to uh, staffing. You know, specifically things like, you know, teachers, uh, aides, special education, English language. Um, you know, you have kids that are already marginalized uh, and may not be getting, you know, the services that are required. Now they're definitely in a slot where um, they're struggling with having gained those services. Okay. All so right. So I've got, a, I've got a little thumbnail sketch now. Um, and, the, and I read um, in the local, it was interesting coverage, by the way. It was the uh, Village Free Press that did a whole piece on what your contracts look like and what uh, administration was paying itself, like the upper administration versus the teachers. Um, 
And I think that the figure they gave for the superintendent was $262,000 a year. They just gave him a big raise. And the average upper echelon administration uh, official was at 172. Does that sound right to you? Thousand dollars a year. Yes. And and meanwhile, <clears throat> the the average teacher there is making what? I, I think average teacher is probably making somewhere in the neighborhood of sixty-five to seventy thousand dollars a year. Holy smokes. Okay. So, and, and by the way, you could quadruple that salary. There's no way you would lock me in a room with 30 high school students. Um, I, I mean, I would, I would insist on a full battle gear and I think I would just cower in a corner because I know when I was like in high school, not nice. Um, so, so there's, so what, give me a story. Like you guys, you're not getting what you need. You go in to talk to the administration as the head of the teachers union there. What, what's the conversation like? How do you feel when you talk to these people? Well, I'm trying to figure out what happened to put teachers for the first time in, I believe, 22 years marching on a picket line for these kids who I believe, um, based on the financial data I've read, are, are under-resourced, underserved, and for, the, for many of them come from families where there's not much disposable income and for some just not even enough to, to, to properly care for their families. Oh, there's, there's definitely um, a disparity in, in finances. In, in Professor Township, you have, um, I mean, you have, you know, a, 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 literally a, um, a vast difference in, of course, in, in funding resources and materials. I mean, I, I think one of the easiest things to tell is, you know, life expectancy, just out of sign note, your life expectancy is really determined by your zip code. You know, access to things like, you know, social service and or medical resources and education, I mean, are, are huge factors. In regards to what we talk about or my conversations with the superintendent. Yeah, what happens? You go in, tell me the story. Like, I, I pretend we're at our dinner table and you're going to explain to me and I say, Dr. John Wardestani, you wanted to talk to the superintendent today. How did that go? Well, I mean, the, 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 we're trying, you know, obviously, I think an issue that people don't always realize is that, you know, my, my sole function is to, that, to defend the contents of the collective bargaining agreement. But everything aside from that is negotiated. And so, you know, I, I, I frequently have conversations with the superintendent about these are the, these are the things, the items that we need to address to change. And, 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 and sometimes those conversations are fruitful. Most of the time, they're not. How does that happen, that they're not fruitful? Does he say, well, good luck with that, go pound sand? Or does he say, yeah, we're, we're looking into that? Or, you know, there's just no money for that? Or what, what does he typically say when you say, I've got no microscope in my science class or whatever the problem is? Well, typically it's a little bit of both. It's, it's well, we'll look into these, these issues or we'll do a study on, on these items. Um, oh, wait, wait, wait. You just said the magic red flag in front of the bull. We'll do a study on these items. Did he actually say to you, we'll do a study on something? No, his, his conversations typically with me are, are, you know, we need to look into those things or that the union can can facilitate um, you know, some kind of action in regards to a study, those types of things. But I mean, I think the biggest problems we have, you know, with um, moving things forward is, you know, there's obviously a, a big divide between the teachers union and, and the superintendent's office. Um, and though, you know, we're, we're, we're trying to move items forward. 
Um, but there's a lot of history. There's a lot of angst. There's a lot of uh, teachers who are, are simply untrustworthy of the system, are untrustworthy of the current administration and the Board of Education. Um, and, you know, wait, I, wait. I that that didn't come out of nowhere. Why don't they trust the administration? Well, when, when you have a long history of of perhaps doing things that are not necessarily transparent. Okay, okay, so now we're getting to it. So what is not transparent that when the teachers find out about it, they go, well, this this is not, this is not acceptable. And by the way, do you ever just look at these people in negotiations and go, what study? You don't need a study. This is clear as the nose on your face. You don't need a study that we need to have, you know, buses that get the kids to school. Or you don't need a study that we don't have enough teachers. Or you don't know. I mean, do you, do you lose your mind? Because there's a reason I'm not on these units. Yeah, those things are, are very frustrating because, you know, it's not, you know, back to staffing, it's not that, the, that we didn't clearly throw up our hands and say, you know, are we adequately prepared for an period day? Are we adequately prepared for the number of kids that we have? And are we, um, are, are the schools staffed appropriately? Um, do we have the resources and materials to actually facilitate real, real learning in classrooms? Um, you know, those are huge, uh, huge, um, issues. So when we say things like, you know, we, we need to make sure that we have, um, you know, instructional interventionists in the building. We need to have. Uh, what, 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 what's an instructional, inter- okay, this is, this is, what is an instructional interventionist, please? So typically, that's a um, person who is typically hired to assist you know teachers in things like instruction and pedagogy, and those types of things. Where I still don't know what it is. I'm sorry. Well, what, so, what, what is it? <laughs> I mean, essentially, their job is to is, is to help teachers improve their instruction. Okay, um, so you've got a teacher who's not reaching some kids because what a cultural difference, a language difference. These are teachers. Why can't they? I don't that actually doesn't that I don't understand that if I if I'm a teacher well, I should know how to teach right no well I mean yeah I, w- I would sincerely hope so yes part of the problem is you know is that you know not all teachers are at the same place and things like ongoing professional development that makes sense you know that actually gives teachers tools in their toolkit to effectively instruct their kids um, you know, if they're teaching different classes, if they're teaching things, let's say they haven't just sort of been taught before, you know, how do we put supports in place that help teachers be the most effective in the classroom? Okay. So, I understand what that is now. I got it. These, so when you start removing some of these pieces, and these are, you know, fundamental pieces. When, you're, when you don't have enough staff, when you don't have enough, um, you know, we have questions about things like resources and how do you get them. And in the meantime, you have this, this, this optic of you have a lot of administrators that are paid extraordinarily well. Right? Because in part of the township, administrators are paid uh, probably the highest in Cook County, while teachers at Proviso are... So are, what do they the say? Most- I mean, I'm guessing that they know that and they know that you know that. So when you go into a meeting and you say, listen, buddy... Uh, we're earning $68,000 a year. We're trying to teach kids who are like on Zoom in the bathroom and just came out of two years being on Zoom in the bathroom because that was the quietest place in their house. And we're not getting any support here. And you're asking us to teach chemistry and we're biology teachers and, you know, we need a refresher. Whatever it is you're saying, why can't we have some help with that? And the administration every time says, well, we'll have a study on that. Do they, don't they ever say, you're right, here's some money, ever? 
Well, I haven't seen that yet. Holy smokes. Okay, so I'd be out there with a sign. All right, so let's fast forward. The teachers have had enough of going in and here. We're going to do a study on it. They've had enough of seeing how much the upper administration has paid. They're presumably at their wit's end with the superintendent who keeps offering them studies and a whole lot of nothing. So they vote to strike. And somewhere in there, if I understand the current situation in the news, the students decide they would like to support their teachers, and that's where the next conflagration starts. Is that right? Uh, for the most part. I mean, the, um, the, the, the most current issue is um, several teachers at, at our sister school, Proviso West, you know, were being identified um, and, and being targeted for termination. And so Why? Uh, we, because they were... Well, there's there's multiple parts to this. Okay, yeah, well, tell me the good parts. I want the juicy parts. What's the, what exactly? So, they, they, first of all, let's set the stage a little. You guys are already short of teachers, right? So, uh, but they're deciding they're going to fire these teachers, whom they all of, of whom they already do not have enough. And the reason that the administration gives is what? Well, that they they violated. Um, they violate either state law or um, or school code, um, and, and the, the issue was around posting signs around the schools. You know, and there were some signs that were posted um, that that I thought were were benign, um, but you had other you know other inflammatory um, um, postings about the superintendent about you know questions. Oh, oh, oh! What did they say? I want to know what they said. Um, what did they know, say? There were comments about you know that the superintendent was you know um, you know taking money from the district and those types of things. And now these were signs that the kids developed uh, and, and posted. These weren't teachers, but um, you know the, my understanding is that they, you know, some several teachers were identified and they were called into investigatory meetings. Wait, how, so, they were identified know, as what? Like giving the kids a pen or what? Facilitating, yeah, essentially, essentially facilitating or facilitating the kids. To use resources to essentially post on um, uh, post these items in the schools or in classrooms. Okay, so this could have been just like you know, I'm I'm sitting in class. I'm going to write this sign. I'm going to put it up in the hallway. Anybody who's ever walked up and down a hallway of a high school knows that they're like it's signomania in there. You've got a sign about the cheerleading tryouts. You've got a sign about the French club. You've got a sign about the astronomy club. Astronomy club. And now a bunch of kids say, uh, Doctor So and So, we want to put up a sign that says uh, we think the superintendent is a is a, a consumer of school district funds for no good reason that's my polite way of putting it and and a teacher in a class um, says well you know go get some paper and for that they they decide they're going to fire the teacher have I got that about right Essentially, so I mean, they, what they did was they they called in several teachers for investigatory meetings, asked them about were they aware of these signs. Um, ultimately, um, you know, they were going to be brought to to termination at the last school board meeting, and so. Um, okay, hold that thought. I want to hear. I want to hear what happens at the school board meeting. And by the way, the image of these teachers who already have a lot to do, going around the hallway and taking down signs. 
that that's a mind blower right there. They got nothing else to do but patrol the hallway for errant signs. Not, nice idea there. Hold on. We'll, we'll do more in a second. You are listening to Dr. John Wardesini. I'm going to screw it up. Wardesini, uh, who is the teachers union negotiator for Proviso School District, has been all over the news. They want to fire four teachers for what well, we're about to find out more of the details. Why? You're listening to The Big Picture with Edwin Eisendrath on WCPT 820. It is Edwin Eisendrath's show. I'm Tori Ryder. And in a moment, you're going to meet one of the teachers currently on sabbatical from Proviso's Math and Science Academy, gifted and talented program. But we're going to wrap up now with uh, Dr. John Wardasani, who is the teacher's negotiator, who's just gotten us to the point where the teachers are hauled into the superintendent's office for investigatory meetings because they've not stopped their kids from putting posters up in the school that say, I'm, I'm making this very polite, we dislike our superintendent. We, we find him objectionable. Hey, hey there. Thanks for, thanks for holding on. So um, what happens in the meeting? Well, unfortunately, in, in these meetings, of course, the, the teachers are are essentially given you know, instructions that they're, um, they're essentially suspended. Pending the results of uh, school board meeting, school board meeting, which I'm sure you saw was on the news, um, where um, essentially these teachers were, were going to be terminated, and so the PTU, you know, worked with you know, of course, not only the Chicago Teachers Union and and the Illinois Federation of Teachers and others, you know, so we we uh, provided them with you know, obviously legal support, and then we rallied our teachers in the in the township along with community members to actually come out to uh, protest at the board meeting. So I mean, that was that was a positive movement. I mean, it was, it was great to see so many community members, teachers, uh, even local mayors in the Proviso Township come out to support these teachers that were under fire. Uh, ultimately, you know, the, the, the teachers' um, movement for termination was... was um, was rescinded. Uh, these um, these teachers were were given um, suspensions, um, and so of course we're still looking at them pursuing those things through other legal avenues. So they're but trying they're, to they're, still they're still trying to punish these teachers is where that where the story is now. Is that right? Essentially, yes. Okay. All right. So now we're all caught up, and I think you've brought us up to date. Any last parting thoughts on the fabulous administration there in Proviso, or what the parents should be thinking about the administration? Or I realize you have to work with this administration, but you know, just pretend that it's just you and me, and you're quietly telling me. But, well, I mean, I, I mean, uh, until we see significant change, you know, in the school board and in the superintendent's office, and the, the movement. Um, is, is always going to be stilted. So you yeah. think they need to go, the whole clean house, school board, go, superintendent, go. As far as you're concerned, you are out of patience. Is that what I'm hearing? Well, well I mean, yes, I'm, I'm, I'm beyond frustrated. Okay, you know, all right. Have folks who are, are going to be strong advocates for kids um, and not, you know, other motives or other other narratives, you know, that's going to be a huge issue. We have to be there to support teachers, in my extension, the students that we serve. And if we're not doing that, then why are we in those offices? Good question. All right. We're going to thank you for I'm, – I'm looking to see <laughs> – I think we're going to be joined momentarily by one of the teachers in your district um, who happens to be somebody I know. But I I am now sitting in a studio where I'm not sure what is exactly happening. But that's the beauty of live radio. 
things things happen that you don't quite understand. Um, so if you had if you had something if you could talk directly to every proviso parent just candidly, what would you be advising them to do right now? Is to be is to be vocal advocates for their students. Okay, and that, be, you know, sorry. Uh, so, how should they be making appointments? Should they be marching? Should they be showing up in this in front of this guy's office? Should they be I don't know, like throwing dandelion seeds in his front yard? I'm just kidding. Like, what should they actually be doing? I mean, truly, the biggest thing is to is to make their presence known. Is to you know to be vocal and attend school board meetings, to be involved in the upcoming school board elections scheduled in April, you know, to be active participants in what's happening in their schools and by extension in their community. Good. Okay, and got parents. it. And I can't thank you enough for your time. You've been wonderful. I think you've set the stage for us. That's Dr. John Wardasani. He is the teachers' union negotiator for Proviso, and uh, we are now going to be joined by Dr. Josh. Burton, who happens to be a friend of mine, and I will give you like a little background. This guy, who happens to be a friend of mine, um, has had an amazing career as a doctor of physics. He would not tell you, but I will tell you, Harvard. Um, And he's worked in many major universities and for IBM and done creative research. And what he decided he really wanted to do was teach school. Because he's that kind of guy. So he went back to school. He became a certified teacher. They set up this gifted and talented math and science program at Proviso. And then reality of this administration that you've just been hearing about. Josh, do I have to call you Dr. Burton when you're my guest? I hope not, Terry. It's great to talk to you. Um, and uh, if, if, you, if your guests are okay with us being on a first-name basis, I think that's a charming way to do it. Okay. So, Josh, you decide. You want to teach these kids, and then you start to figure out that um, things are not rosy there at Proviso. What, what's your first tip-off that the kids are really um, coming from a situation that perhaps is novel to you? What kinds of obstacles are they working against here? Well, there, there's such a range, Turi. It's um, obviously, um, you know, all kids need sort of the, the best instruction that they can get and need to be met where they are. As as a group, the students that I see at Proviso Math and Science Academy are, and their test scores prove it, about even with the um, magnet schools of Chicago Public or the top schools of the North Shore. Uh, in practice, because of you know all sorts of deficits, some of which can be chalked up to the educational system, others to family circumstances, every reason you could imagine. Um, they come in with an average of about a two-year math deficit relative to where students with the, the same ability would otherwise be. Um, we're a physics-first school, and we teach um, required honors freshman physics, which is my baby. Um, when I came in, uh, John Wardasani was a mentor and uh, did a lot in helping me to get my uh, my classroom running. Okay, but we are the we're, we're the gatekeeper and the sort of the catch up course 
that gets the kids focused on analytic and algebraic and uh, you got to stop or my eyes are going to glaze over. You're just going to have to stop now because you're saying things like algebraic, which I understand, but don't want to know too much about. Unlike you. So you've got you've got kids, kids and we bring them up to speed. There you go. That that, you did it. Okay, you did it. So now you've got kids. Tell me about the bathroom experience there with the with the pandemic and the bathroom. What's going on with this? Oh my! Well, so so during uh, during COVID, one of the challenges was reaching out to the students personally, and um, you know that I was. Uh, so I'll go back to the very first week of COVID because two things you know about me are one that I'm numerically inclined. And so I saw all this coming a good way ahead and had all my friends. You know, yeah. I'm going to pause you. Jo- Josh yes. scared the bejeepers out of us before the shutdown. He's like, well, this many people will die and this many people will be. And I'm like, could you please leave my dining table now? I don't want to hear this, but you, you predicted it. So now the shutdown uh, has happened. I told the kids on the day we were leaving, it's going to take the school a few weeks to get up to speed. My physics class doesn't stop. We're meeting virtually on Zoom on Monday morning as usual. And in a few weeks, there'll be guidance about how we are going to go about doing this. Right now, everybody is pretending we're going to be back in two weeks. That's not going to happen. Um, This isn't my first apocalypse. I told them my my story of going through the Gulf War uh, as a researcher in Israel and told them how it was going to feel after after it was no longer summer vacation after they'd been dealing with it for a while. What I did not anticipate was the specific difficulties that come with the social circumstances that a lot of our kids are in and have to deal with. So, okay, example, so now it's Monday and yeah. you start. For, can you yank that phone out of the wall for me, please? I will do my best. That's, okay, yank. Yeah. One, two, three, that. pull. Thanks. Got it? It's done. Good. Okay. Yeah. All right. So now um, it's Monday and now what happens? Well, so one of the things that immediately came up was difficulty in getting online and getting connected. That had been anticipated. Our kids are from, you know, many of them from families that don't, you know, cell phones weren't an automatically assured thing and Internet access wasn't guaranteed. But the thing I hadn't anticipated was a lot of reluctance in turning on cameras. And basically, I felt that, you know, the class worked better when people were interacting in person and they were interacting virtually very nicely. These are good, hardworking kids, and they were happy to get out a whiteboard on the shared space and work together on problems, but they wouldn't show their faces. And I approached it gently because this wasn't my first check your privilege moment with these kids. You really want to know what's going on before you ask somebody a question up front that's going to be embarrassing. Right. And, you know, that doesn't have uh, it doesn't have to be about money. You know, there are all sorts of things that are embarrassing in kids' lives. Well, let's let's hear it. What was the list? What did you run into? Give me a few things that... the biggie, was, the biggie was just that a lot of them didn't have a private place to be. Their homes were sort of not sufficiently, uh, you know, not everybody has their own room. Um, people have, you know, daycare ap- operating out of their own out of their own houses. Sometimes they have um, other things going on in their lives. And quite a lot of my kids were actually coming online and uh, attending class from the bathroom, that being the only room that they could close the door on. And they didn't want their friends to know. They were embarrassed about it. Yeah, that would do it. Yeah, as time went on, uh, a second thing that came up 
And this was something that we had to deal with as um, as a faculty. And so this is one of these things where quiet agreements to do the decent thing happened. And I will trust you not to uh, make me give any specifics or hold it against particular people. But um, kids whose families were elsewhere, either because of, you know, job loss during the pandemic or immigration situations or whatever, um, wound up, you know, sort of taking the opportunity of being virtual to no longer be in the district. And so as teachers, we had to decide what to do about this. We're an honors school hanging by a string and a student who for any reason is considered not to be a student in the district anymore is going to lose and probably never be able to get back the the unique thing that we offer. what do you do if the kid is in Ciudad Victoria and is with his parents for the first time in two years? What do um, you do? You, wait, wait, what do you do? You, you hold the class in such a way that kids who show up asynchronously because their town doesn't have power during, or because they don't have access to the Internet during the hour that you're in class, you uh, make it possible for them to connect and get the assignments and catch up, and you mark them present if they're getting the work done diligently. And, okay. All right. Uh, Hope that hope that your principal is sympathetic about not asking too many questions about what it means for them to be present. Well, I'm guessing you got the support from your president, uh, your principal, that um, the gentleman, your teachers union person said he wasn't getting from the administration. So you got the bathroom you got in Mexico. Now you're teaching physics. Um, I understand that somebody placed an interesting phone call to you. What was this exactly? Oh, my word. So, yes, one of my one of my students, um, an American citizen, um, was was uh, tagged at the border by uh, by immigration with her family. Her family was uh, 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 basically attempting to attempting to return and things were not in order. They wound up arrested and in detention for several days before it could be sorted out. She was a minor and needed sort of assistance to come back. The thing that broke my heart, if you were a 15-year-old uh, sort of effectively uh, captured or uh, abducted and pulled away from your family um, at the border somewhere in Texas. What's the one phone call that you would make before they took your cell phone away? In this case, she called her physics teacher to let me know that her homework was going to be a few days late. And Did you I cry? I would have cried. Did you, did you cry? Wait, John, um, did you cry? You know, I would have cried. Uh, do I have to answer that, Turi? It yes. Was, it, was, it was hard, but a lot about this job is hard. So uh, It's worth it, though. Okay, so the, she calls her physics teacher from detention at the border. She's a U.S. citizen. She can't get back in. Something's wrong. Now I have to know, did she ever make it back? Yeah, she was fine, and she did. She didn't miss any work. I think I, well, I, 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 I remember what grade I gave her. I won't violate her privacy, but she did well. I'm glad to hear it. Well, your, your kids, a lot of them do do well. You you yeah. did, I mean, because we've talked, uh, I happen to know that sometimes kids from your class get into really amazing universities, but they don't always get to go. Could you talk about that a little bit? I could. Um, there, It is certainly true that we've had students um, admitted to Ivy League and top-tier engineering schools who have wound up deciding that a 
free ride because in those schools, you know, if you're if you have a complete need, um, they will give you up to full tuition and room and board. Um, may not be enough if the student is the only person in their family who can legally work. If they're concerned about younger siblings, what do you do if you're in uh, in Philadelphia or Ithaca or or Boston and you know your uh, your parents suddenly have to leave the country or you know somebody loses a job or something? Um, fortunately, here in Chicago, we do have. Um, some outstanding commuter schools, which make it possible for kids to, you know, pursue a, a good four-year education, even if it sometimes takes them six years, while being at home. And that sometimes is all that they can do, even if their their dreams might have gone farther afield and given them chances to go to universities that would be delighted to have them. But if you'll forgive me, Terry, um since you've got me on the thought, I want to tell a, a happy story rather than a sad one that then cycles, gives you a little bit of flavor for the school, but also cycles us back a little bit to um, the situation with the superintendent you were discussing with John. Oh, I'd love that. So and even of- though I'm a morose person and a miserable human being, I, would, I will tolerate a happy story. Go. One of my students, um, brilliant dear girl, um, whose picture was plastered all over um, uh, billboards all over the western suburbs of Chicago. People driving on the tri-state might have seen them because Proviso, when they were when they were losing teachers at a catastrophic rate, um, reached out and tried a, a hiring drive to, and they wanted uh, pictures of you know bright, happy. Um, ethnically diverse students of what the opportunity could be to come teach at our school. And um, this is a a photogenic student. I would have put her on a poster as well. I would also have put her, as the superintendent did, on a student committee to, to sort of give some idea of what students are feeling the needs are at the school. Um, Unlike the superintendent, I would actually have listened to her when she was on the committee and <laughs> not had a uh, not had a, not had a, a four foot eleven inch girl stand up to him and say, um, "Look, if you if if you're not going to pay attention to what I'm saying, then why do you even have me here?" Did she? Wait, wait, wait. Did she? Did she? Did she? she? Did. Good she for did. her. Well, bravo. She, she comes. She, she comes from a gutsy family. Um, her her attitude and her performance in my class and elsewhere um, got her into a very fine school in Boston. And um, I had the privilege when I was uh, visiting there last month of seeing her in the finale of a play that she's doing when she's not busy taking five courses and volunteering as a tutor in Dorchester and uh, working at the uh, the student shop selling uh, selling bling to tourists. The this, this student is just a, a fount of energy. When, I, when she was on a Saturday night performing in this play, out of nowhere, her parents and her two oldest brothers, having left the school at, uh, after school on Friday and driven through the night to Boston, um, popped up. She didn't know they were there. They found her on her by the cell phone application and just banged on her, her dorm window and 
greeted her. Um, we uh, we all had a wonderful reunion at intermission. Her mother had helped, had been a, uh, a chaperone for my astronomy club in the past. We all knew each other. And then her parents and her brothers uh, rolled back to Chicago and were back in school on Monday morning. That's the kind of support that our kids have from their parents. That's and good to hear. That That is a good, happy yeah. story. And you had another story of support. Tell me the story of the meeting where Spanish was not going to be tolerated and that there was an insurrection. And okay. this was recent, right? This just happened. This was, a, this was at a board meeting last spring. Um, a student whose, uh, whose English was sketchy, um, you know, uh, got up to uh, got up to. Uh, uh, addressed the board and uh, gave a sentence in English and then apologized, saying that, you know, he'd have to do the rest of it in Spanish. Um, the one, uh, I guess there may be two, but the, the, one of the Spanish fluent uh, members of the school board um, asked to uh, come up, actually uh, got up from the table and went down to the floor to the microphone to stand near the student and offer to translate and was told by the current chair of the board that, um, no, the student is addressing those people in the language that they will understand. Well, th- th- wait, those people? Who, who are those people? Yes. yes. Meant to be, please? Well, the, the, those people are so this is the this is the part that John is is far too polite to say but um i i the the school uh, there the, the school district is as as you said um brown and black the uh, voters in the school district and the board are black and brown and um the there is quite a lot of tension that is specifically connected to the fact that uh, providing services for the students in proportion to their numbers um, creates a, a certain amount of friction when the services are Spanish language translation. So you're, I'm going to unpolite um, this. Hold up. I'm going to unpolite this. <laughs> what, you're, what you're saying is that the, uh, the long-term residents of the district who are citizens and can vote for school board races, et cetera, are not always as kindly disposed as they might be to people who live in the school district, who have children who have every right to attend school in the school district, but who may be undocumented and thus cannot vote in these school board and budgeting types of referenda and elections. Do I understand that right? I'll let you say all of that, and I won't uh, say a peep against it, provided that you also let me finish the story. And oh, please, yes. Are about this. Please. If these are the, this school, taken as the actual students I see in class every day, in addition to being wonderful and bright and hopeful and everything that makes me feel young again, are also some of the least racist people I've ever met in my life. And um, the what happened at this meeting after an, after a Hispanic student was basically told that he didn't have a right to be heard or to be translated by a board member who was willing to do it was that every black student, and I think there may have been a couple of white students as well, who were online, more than 20 of them waiting to talk, stepped aside together out of the line and for the next hour and a quarter of the meeting there was speaker after speaker after speaker students and parents speaking entirely in spanish and the board had to sit and 
um, listen to listen to Spanish speakers at a uh, at, at a community meeting because that those were the members of the community who wanted to talk because the other members of the community who undoubtedly had just as much to say and also wanted to talk were willing to make this gesture of solidarity. Now, uh, now you're not the kind of person not. you're not the kind of person who would say serves them right, but I will. <laughs> Um, you know, you just have to go to um, a an assembly, for example, every year. In addition to the uh, the uh, single MIO and the African, the, the Black History Month assembly, we do have an assembly for the Asian students who make up all of three or four percent of the school. And you just have to see the uh, the the. the Japanese girl doing the cherry blossom dance being actually black and the uh, the uh, boys doing the Filipino stick dance being actually Mexican in support of the idea that the school should be a welcoming place for our Asian students as it is for our Hispanic students, as it is for our black students. You just have to see this to know that the students aren't confused. They know that we're all in this together and that what we're doing is we're making Americans because the next generation depends on it. Well, I'm glad you put it that way, because really, um, that's, I gather, why part, a big part, not just teaching physics, but that's part of why you wanted to leave the corporate physics life and do this um, in the first place, Right. I, I won't lie. I do believe that walking through life without physics is walking through life half blind and that the specific subject that I'm teaching opens up not just practical business opportunities, but spiritual opportunities for the kids. It opens up their mind in a way that nothing else can. But if I didn't have that that loyalty to the subject in particular, certainly the idea that every that every child who grows up in this country, um, for our own selfish interest, if nothing else, um, deserves to have the opportunity to have their uh, their gifts and their capabilities sort of recognized and developed and nurtured. Um, that's what gets me up at 530 in the morning for a difficult commute. Yeah, it is a long one for you, I know. Um, let me ask you about um, it, one of the things that... that teachers communicate in stu- in classrooms where students may be new Americans or not yet Americans is how to navigate a system where you have to fend for yourself. So in a moment, I'm going to ask you about some of the skills that you're teaching to your kids. Um, and, and I really want people to hear this because I think w- when the administration treats the teachers so shabbily and won't give them resources and won't fund them, meanwhile feathering their nest to such an extent that the, the my pillow guy couldn't feather a pillow as well as these people seem to be feathering their own nests. Um, I, I would like to talk about some of the getting along in the USA as a new or recent or a new to English speaking American that, that has to go along with learning physics. So if you would speak to that in a moment, we'll do that. It's Edwin Eisendrath's show. You are listening to Dr. Josh Burton. He is uh, on sabbatical from the Proviso Math and Science Academy. If you've been watching TV or online and you've seen the the craziness unfolding in the Proviso School District, um, this he will explain to you why it is truly such an outrage that these kids aren't being given and their teachers aren't being given the resources that they need. This is WCPT Chicago's Progressive Talk. You're looking at the big picture with Edwin Eisentraff on WCPT 820. 
I'm Tori Ryder in for Edwin Eisendrath, who has a holiday weekend all to himself when he comes back next week. And you can ask him what he did with it. I don't know. I like to be here. So I'm sure he likes to be here every other weekend. It's a novelty for me. Uh, Dr. Josh Burden is joining us. He is uh, on sabbatical, but one of the teachers at Proviso teaching their gifted and talented uh, math and science students. He teaches physics. And uh, one of the things that has been so outrageous in watching the, uh, I don't know, demolition of the school district. Josh, is that a fair term? The internal implosion of the school district on the evening news? Um, the trials of the school district, let's put it that way. Okay, uh, you say trials. And- we, we, we must live in hope, Tori, and I think there's a lot of, these kids are hard to hold down. Oh, that's good to hear. So tell me, what are some of the soft skills that they need to learn in in because there some of them are first time aspiring college students, first time aspiring physicists. In addition to really teaching them physics, what are they learning um, that that the teachers are not being supported in teaching them? Well, I'm not worried that our kids are not going to be the equals of um, the students from some privileged North Shore school. Um, when they get to college, first of all, we'll make sure that they're as well prepared. And second of all, they're tougher because they've had real world life experiences. They're not going to fold the first time that uh, you know they, they meet a challenge. Um, what they don't have, unless we make a real effort to uh, give it to them, are the sort of the implied skills of uh, team building and collaboration that um, people just naturally soak up from, well, honestly, from their parents and from the people who dine at their parents' uh, tables, having um, jobs that involve that. If you think about it, um, there's a single skill that nearly every sort of uh, uh, upper middle class white collar job has and that very few lower middle class uh, blue collar jobs have and that is sitting down together at a conference table with people who know different things from what you do sharing information in a productive back and forth discussion and everybody getting up from the table knowing more than they did before about how to get their job done um, my classroom is what uh, when I used to teach at college, we would call a flipped classroom, which means that um, the thing that has the most value, which in physics is actually working through problems and figuring out how to solve them, is the thing that you want to do in class with the teacher there. The, the lectures can be, you know, our kids can go look them up online in Khan Academy. They can um, you know, sort of read from the book. They can get to what we call their point of maximum confusion. Um, without my help. It's getting through that point of maximum confusion. That's where I want to be around to help them. And so if you were to come into my classroom on a typical Wednesday, let's say, you'd see all the kids come running in and the problems listed on the board that I'm most interested in having them do will have blanks next to them and they will be racing to get the problem that they want for their table. They will all grab great big whiteboards that we made in the garage for them and um, start writing up their problem together, arguing about it in little groups of three or four, or now that, you know, our our, uh, numbers, teachers to students have suddenly gotten worse, often in groups of five. Um, They will um, sort of work out the problem. 
at about 10 or 12 minutes into the period, I'll bang my ruler on the table and call the board meeting to order. And they'll put up all their boards and I won't do anything. I'll just sit in the corner of the room and the students will lead a discussion where they decide who goes first and what they, you know, and explain their problem. And kids at the other tables ask questions about why you solved it that way rather than this way. Oh, could we show you the way we solved the problem? Occasionally, I'll ask the tricky question that gets the discussion going in a different direction. But mostly, just as at every table, you know, the one student who understood it best has taught the three or four others. Now, each table teaches the others, and 30 people go home knowing something that they didn't know beforehand. And that's Um, important because... I'm sorry, go ahead. What? The value of this skill is just my nightmare that my kids will one day be sitting in the library at 2 o'clock in the morning struggling with a problem set at some elite college and wondering why, whether they really belong here, whether it's something about them and their background that's holding them short, where the kids who are better connected, who've known how to do this, formed their own study group, got together in the library at 7 o'clock in the evening, got the problem set done by 9, went home and are getting a good night's sleep. I don't want my kids to be that lonely one in the library. I know they'll succeed anyway, but um, I want them to have the soft skills, the confidence to work together and to sort of form a group to uh, to do to get things done wherever they are. Well, I think and, you're underselling um, yourself a little bit. I mean, if I may speak bluntly, I think there are kids who really flame out in school because they don't have that skill and they feel so alone and they feel like they're the only people who are working at three in the morning. And so it's it's more than just uh, giving them a skill that's a that's useful and comforting and helpful. I think it can be a life or death issue, sometimes literally. Um, and for four years, we are there for them. After that, they have to be there for each other. And all we can do is teach them to do that because in a generation to come, we'll be gone, and how well they are there for each other will determine what kind of a world they build. I think that that's a, that's a pretty good place to almost leave it there. Um, just um, you're, you're on sabbatical right now. You're watching the drama unfold on the evening news. Are, you, uh, are the teachers supporting each other? Are the teachers talking to each other? Is there a good level of camaraderie amongst the faculty there who are in the soup with this uh, labor effort? Oh, heavens. Oh, heavens, yes. But don't tell anybody because you don't know where who might be listening to the little chats that we're having with each other. Oh. But, yes, absolutely. We are, we are there for each other, and we're... We have a common sense of purpose that uh, infuses the school and makes me look forward to it every time I show up in the morning. So um, if you had um, one thing to say to the students right now who may or may not be listening um, as they watch the adults squabbling, scrabbling, marching, I mean, I'm assuming you're doing this for them, but um, what, what would you say to them? I would tell them that it doesn't have to be this way. You can build a better world. Um, and that, uh, you know, the, uh, if you, you look at us and see grownups, um, and then you see, you know, the, the way grownups can behave and you despair. Um, we're all just people and, um, we hope you'll do better when it's your turn. That, that's a good place to leave it. Thanks. Dr. Josh Burton, uh, physicist, academic, I'm trying to figure out how to, what button I'm supposed to 
push to thank you. Um, and and uh, one of the folks who's walked a picket line, currently on sabbatical, if you want to know when you when you renews what on earth has just happened at Proviso, I think you've got a pretty good picture now of the caliber of the kids and how cruel it is, actually, that they're they're not getting what they really need and deserve. It is Edwin Eisendrath's show. I'm Tori Ryder. In a moment, a master storyteller and former undocumented person, new American, will join us, Nestor Gomez, in a few. You're listening to The Big Picture with Edwin Eisendrath on WCPT 820. You are listening to Edwin Eisendrath's show. I am Tori Ryder. It is, oh my gosh, a pleasure to be here. Um, and this hour, if you want to join us by phone, you are absolutely welcome to do it. 773-763-WCPT is the phone number. And you can text that number as well. A lot of different things we've been talking about, um, but kind of a thread of, of gratitude and um coming from places where it seemed like you might not make it, and yet you do somehow. Um, And a person I really wanted you to meet, because I've heard him tell stories, um, and I've watched his videos on YouTube, is a guy named Nestor the Boss Gomez. He came with his family to this country from Guatemala as a younger man, I believe a teenager when he arrived here, and spent many years um, with an undocumented status, is a new American two years ago, and has used his gift as a storyteller to really expand the world uh, for those of us who who have no idea what it was like to to live here in, under those uh, circumstances. And also, he's hilariously funny sometimes and very entertaining. So I wanted you to meet him. He has a new book out also called, oh boy, I'm going to, I will botch up the title. Nestor, welcome to WCPT. Is it called Your Driver Has Arrived? Is that the name properly? Yes. Good. Yes, the, name of the, the name of the book. Yes, Your Driver Has Arrived. And um, would you like to explain uh, the title, the book, and how you chose it? Yeah, uh, the book seems, um, uh, as you say, I'm a storyteller, and I have plenty of stories. Uh, I have stories about uh, coming to this country undocumented, about my experience as an undocumented uh, person here in the United States. I also have stories about my, uh, my family life, about raising my kids, about uh, getting married, getting divorced, getting married, getting divorced, you know, the American way of life. <laughs> um, yes. <laughs> <laughs> and I, uh, and also I have stories about driving for in Chicago for Uber and Lyft. And ah, that's why the book is called "The Driver Has Arrived." You have some wonderful stories about that. Could you tell one? Uh, sure. Um, how much time do we have? Oh, I, I entertain me, babe, and we'll figure it out. Okay. I'm gonna, I'm, I'm gonna read that uh, the beginning of the book just, okay. just to give you a glimpse of what the, what, what the book is all about. Okay. It all started a couple of years ago. I was driving downtown on my way to a bookstore when suddenly a car appeared in the street. The car was wearing a mustache. What was that? I thought that thing in the front of the car. I couldn't believe what I had just seen. A car with a mustache. I needed to call my brother. He always seemed to know what's going on, or at least he knows how to find out. Hey, you will not believe what I just saw. A car with a mustache. Yes, a car with a mustache. No, 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 I don't mean a mustang. I mean a car with a mustache. Bigote? Mustache? No, I don't know what it means. I thought you knew. You always seem to know about these things. 
listen, I am on my way to the bookstore. You are in your office pretending to work. Why don't you get on your computer and see what you can find out about these cars with mortgage? Let me know, okay? I went to the bookstore, and after a couple of hours reading, I forgot about all about a car with the mortgage. A few months later, I went to my brother's house to celebrate my mother's birthday. My brother was there, of course, but he was acting very strange. He kept checking his phone every other minute, and suddenly, after looking at his phone, he left in a hurry. He came back a couple of hours later. Hey, what's going on? I asked my brother. It's my mom's birthday, but you left for a long time. I couldn't help it. I had to pick up a ride, and after I dropped the person, I got another ride request nearby. What are you talking about? Are you driving, are you driving a taxi now? Not a taxi, he explained. I signed up with a, with a phone application to get ride requests through the application, and I get paid. I get, I get to use my own car, and they give me a cool monster to put on front of the car. <laughs> a monster? I thought. Yes, you say. I got $500 just for signing up. Then another $500 for recommending drivers. I got a couple of friends and my wife to sign up. I made over $2,000 in recommendations this month alone. All I could think about how that I was the one who told him about the monsters in the first place. <laughs> I should be the one making all the money. Do you want to sign up? Yes. You get $500 if you complete 20 rides in your first week, and you get a monster for your car. I sign up to be a driver. Who could say no to getting a cool monster for your car? I love that. I think I'm going to, I'm applauding. Bravo. I have to say, I lived in San Francisco when um, they just started, and those pink mustaches started showing up around the city. And it was it was exactly what you're describing. Like, what the heck is a car with a big pink mustache doing? And, uh, and now, of course, they don't need the mustache anymore because we know what those stickers mean and what they're like. How how old were you when you came from Guatemala to the states? Yeah, I was about 15 years old. So and, I've been I've been living I've been living in the United States longer than I live in Guatemala. And how many of you came together? Yeah, it was. Uh, it was me and my siblings, my my two brothers and my and my older sister. And and your mom was with you, or she was already here. My mom, my parents had come to the United States previously. They they had come uh, here for a few years, and they left us in the care of our grandparents and uncles. And after after a while, my mother sent my father back to Guatemala to to bring us to the United States. So he was with you on the trip. You're, you've probably yeah. been seeing all of this footage of people coming and being stuck on the border, being separated. I mean, it's like month to month. You don't know what it will be day to day sometimes. What was it like for you at that time? How long ago was it? Oh, it was in the mid-1980s. So it was way back before the Internet, way back before, you know, all, all these all this forms of communication that we have now. Um, but yes, I do see the news. I do see the tragedies that happen, that people that get lost in the desert, the people that cross while they are inside a car. Yeah. Uh, after we made it across the border, we actually rode on a, on a pickup truck. It was maybe like a dozen people that were uh, in the pickup truck and they were driving to a to a house where we were uh, uh, to like a safe house. Uh-huh. So, my, so my family could have been one of those families that got into an accident while they were driving yeah. across the border. So it's very, it's, it's, uh, yeah, it, it, it changed me up every time I hear about those, those things happening.
when when you you just sort of glossed over well we crossed and we got on a pickup truck can you talk a little bit about where you crossed and and how yeah we we when we crossed over the border i mean well we 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 were we were living in guatemala so we actually crossed over two borders right we crossed over the mexican border first with a visa to for tourists and they told us you know uh, we'll give you this visa but you only be in the country for a couple of days and you cannot go too far too far north uh-huh. of course we, we our plan was to like spend weeks traveling mexico and make it across the united states uh so we traveled mexico and then when we we reached tijuana and we crossed over the border through by by foot, we we, we my my father uh, contacted a coyote, and then the, the coyote helped us run across the border by on foot. Did you feel like you, the coyote had put you in danger, or did you feel like you were safe with that person? Uh, safe as much as safe as you can be when you're crossing the border. Um, and the coyote, we were trusting our, our father, you know, our, our father was the person that was like, oh, this is what we're going to do. I didn't feel like my father was going to put us in a situation that we were going to die. That was one of the main reasons why we didn't cross the border to the, to the river, because we were little kids that we can't win. And we didn't cross the border to the desert, because the desert is even more dangerous. Than yeah, yeah. How, how young was the youngest? How, how long was, how young was the youngest oh, yeah. of you? Uh, it was my, my sister who was 11 months older than me. Me, who was about 15 years old, my middle brother, who was five years younger than me, and my youngest brother, who was about five years old. Wow. That's a lot for your, uh, your father must have been. Yeah. Did, did he ever talk about it later? Did he ever say how he felt when he was shepherding all of you into the country? Did he ever talk about that? Well, you know, we really didn't have this conversation because a, a few years right after we arrived, my father, uh, uh, my father got diagnosed with cancer as he died. Oh. So my father has been, yeah, my father has been away. And me and my father, we really didn't have a, um, a very close father and dad relationship. We, we never really, we, in, in, in some occasions, we sat down and had conversations, but there were a lot of things that, left, that were left on stage. Well, why do you think that was? Well, it was mainly because my father had a really bad temper, and I was like always really afraid of my father. Ah. And then because my parents came to this country and left us for many years, in Guatemala, while basically while I was becoming a teenager, while I was, was becoming a man, yeah. So that connection that you force with your kids when you know during those years, it yeah. was sadly never there. So, do you? I mean, in looking back on it, do you see it any differently now than you saw it then, or is it even more clear to you that you, what you missed and um, what you would have liked to be different? So of course, it's a lot more clear now because when you're growing up, you're like, oh, I don't, I, I, I don't need to meet my dad. I'm, I'm a man. You know, you, you have different, different ideologies about life and you think that you know everything. And as you get older, you realize you really don't know anything. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, yeah. So, yes, I, I, I wish that me and my father had a, a lot more time to talk, a lot more, fun, more time to, like, know each other. Uh, like, like I say, at, at, the, at the end of his life, we started to actually have conversations and connect. Um, and we do, we, I wish that we had more time to get to know each other, but sadly that was not the case. I'm glad you had the few, and I'm glad you're around for your kids, so that that's a lovely thing. I I love when you talk about one of your stories about how you decided to learn English. I I think a lot of people, I mean, for, for myself, if you plunked me in another country, 
and said, okay, well, you're going to have to survive here and you're going to have to learn the language and you're going to have to figure out school. That's a lot to ask of kids. But you guys, as a family, sort of came up with an, an, a novel way of, of figuring it out. Do you want to talk about that a little bit? Yes. It's, um, yeah, when, when we came to the United States, um, we, we in the story, I say that we felt very strange. We felt like we didn't belong because everybody looked different. Everybody spoke a different language that we didn't know. And everything was different. So the only place that we felt at home was at home watching TV. Back then in the day, there were only two channels that were in, in Spanish, was Televisión and, uh, and uh, Univision and Telemundo had one channel each in Spanish, and we would, would be at home just watching TV all day long because we could watch that show that we used to watch in Guatemala. And then when we started going to school, uh, we realized that we were not learning English fast enough. Uh, mainly because my, my, my brother had a, a, a test, an oral test about the capitals of the uh, the United States, the states of the United States and the capitals. Uh-huh. And and I was helping him study for the test. And as as I was helping him, we memorized the states and the capitals by the way, by the only way that we knew, which was the only thing we knew in English was the ABC, A, B, C, D. So we put the names of the states like I, O, W, A, trying to say Iowa. Right. Um, and that's the way he memorized it. So he was really bad. He flung the test. And then I told my brother, we cannot be watching TV in Spanish anymore. Let's watch TV in English so we could learn more English. So we could get accustomed to English. And just by watching TV in English, we were able to learn a lot in a, in, in a few months. So when you watch TV in English, to learn English, you're going you're gonna to learn some things on TV that it might not be obvious you're going to learn. I mean, I'm just thinking about... Um, if you watch the news in English no, for the first time, no, we we watch a lot of the Cosby Show before the before the allegations against Cosby. Uh, we watch a lot of Rosane uh, before we learn that Rosane uh, actually hates uh, documented immigrants. <laughs> we watch a lot of <laughs> we watch a lot of the Simpsons and Facts before we learned that we shouldn't be watching facts. <laughs> so uh, it, it, it was a lot of trial and error. It was a lot of like watching TV and be like, I don't really know what they're saying, but I'm getting the, I'm getting the idea of it. I, 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 did, and in those days, they didn't have subtitles on everything. Because I, I yeah, sometimes I, like to watch, I, I watch everything. The older I get, the more I need the subtitles. And I, I don't know when I watch TV whether they're just counting on everybody having subtitles now, because I don't know if this is happening to you. When you watch a movie or something without the subtitles, you're like, what, what, what did they, what? And I end up rewinding things so many times. I'm like, ah, the heck with it. Give me back the subtitles. So I at least know what's going on. But if I watch a foreign film, if you watch a, a, a film after a while with enough subtitles, you do start to pick up a word or two. Um Eventually, if the subtitles are good. So have you learned any other languages with subtitles on TV? No, I, I, no, I got too busy with life. I like right, right after high school, you know, right after high school, like I got married, I had two kids. So I got too busy with life and, and bills and payments and things to actually pay attention to any other stuff. I, I did manage to finally learn English, although I still speak English. Uh, English with a sexy Latino accent. Your language, your English is beautiful. I would listen to you all day. And most Americans, if they're honest, will tell you 
um, that we like hearing English with an accent. It's very exotic, um, no matter whose accent. Although I have to tell you, as a woman who had a British boyfriend for many, many years, and people would come up and say, oh, it's so exciting to hear. Don't you love to hear the accent? And at a certain point, you want to look at people and go, well, it really kind of depends what they're saying, don't you think? <laughs> um, it really depends. So, um, I mean, for example, you know, if your boyfriend is saying, you know, those jeans really make your backside look huge, that that's not. You don't care what accent that comes in. Yes, so. I'm going to ask you, I think we're going to ask some folks to call in, and I want to talk to you about your life as a storyteller. Um, so if you will just stand by for a moment, this is Nestor the Boss Gomez. He's a master storyteller. He tells stories at events all over Chicago. He has a new book out, Your Driver Has Arrived. And if you would like to join that conversation on Edwin Eisendrath's show, I'm Tori Ryder. The number is 773-763-9278. That's 773-763-WCPT. We are Chicago's progressive talk. You're listening to The Big Picture with Edwin Eisendraft on WCPT 820. It is WCPT. I am Tori Ryder. In for Edwin, it is Chicago's progressive talk that you're listening to either over the air or online. And speaking of listening, I just want to say I'm so jazzed that uh, Patty Vasquez has a longer drive home. I'm like, well, I mean, I want to say that right. I don't want her drive home to be longer. I want longer to listen to her driving at home. You know what I mean, right? Right. She's doing two hours now. That's great. They double the patty. What could be bad, right? Uh, on the phone with me, Nestor the Boss Gomez, master storyteller, author, um, and he'll tell you more of his story. What came with his uh, family as a 15-year-old um, to this country and uh, has had a, a really varied and interesting life. And you're welcome to call with your questions. Um, joining us, Nestor, thanks for holding on. Joining us is Roosevelt, who has some questions for you. Roosevelt, welcome to WCPT. Sorry, first of all, happy Thanksgiving to you and your family. Well, thank uh, you. I want to flag here, Nestor does not celebrate with respect to the indigenous community, but I'll just call it Gratitude Weekend and then we're covered. How's that? Excellent. excellent. Okay, welcome. Um, Okay, uh, Nestor. Buenas tardes. ¿Cómo estás? Muy bien, muy bien. Gracias. Um, Tori, thank you for taking my call. Uh, I had a couple of questions. Oh, what year did, did you come, did you and your family come to the United States? Excuse me, what was the question? He wanted to know what year you came. Oh, yeah, it was, it was in the mid-1980s. In the 80s. Okay, good. Here's, here's my follow-up questions, Nestor. What made you and your family or your father and, and, and your, uh, your family, your siblings, come to the United States? And actually, I have a series of questions. Well, you get two, and then I'm going to thank you. How about that? Okay. And did our interference, to be specific, did our meddling in those particular areas of Central America, Guatemala, El Salvador, Nicaragua. Did that have any impact on your family coming to this country? Did uh, Reagan's interference in the in uh, Central America have a have any effect in those countries? To, to be specific, in your country of Guatemala. Good question. I'm going to thank you for asking it. Go ahead. As you know, the interference of the American country in the, in the, in the political and socio-economic life of Latin American countries has been extensive. It hasn't, it wasn't just Reagan 
and it wasn't just Central America. Uh, the United States interfered in Chile, in Argentina, uh, I think even in Brazil. It interfered in Guatemala. They took down a president and they put another president, and this is way back, even before Reagan. Uh, so by the time me and my family, we, we used to sell Guatemalan worldly dolls that we sold to the tourists that came to the country. But my country, Guatemala, was in the middle of a civil war, so we couldn't sell that many dolls because tourists stopped coming to the country. And because of that, we had to come to this country. Uh, my parents came to this country first, uh, and they planned to like uh, came here, come here, make some money, and then go back to Guatemala. But the things can continue to get worse in Guatemala, and then they decided it was safer for us to just come to this well, country and document. There you got your answer. I would, I'm would. i trying to figure out how to hang this thing up. I think I got it. There we go. Um, but, uh, Nestor, I want to know, as a kid, how much would you have been aware of the politics of the situation? Because when I was 15, I mean, I, I had a McGovern for President button. But other than that, you know, I mean, following the Vietnam War. But I don't know how much I was aware of the deep intricacies of the political situation in my country as a kid were you yeah no no i I wasn't as aware as i am now of course you know uh throughout the years i learned more i learned more about my own history i learned more about uh uh, so many more things but uh when i was there i i i wasn't really that involved in politics you know the 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 most important thing for us was the world cup to be honest with you as a kid playing soccer on the street, you know. Sure. Uh, but, but then as, as I came here to the United States, as I started to learn about, as I started to see why my family had come here and tried to, to start to investigate and try to uh, to have my own views about life and politics, that sometimes are, are, are not even the same views like with my mom. Like my mom has this view that the United States is the greatest country in the world and she's so 100% grateful to the United States. And my view is more like, yeah, it's a good country, but it's not like a perfect country. And, you know, they, they have done things that shouldn't have done. Uh, and I'm grateful to be here as well. But I wish that, as, like, uh, as any person that has to come to another country, you know, nobody ever grows up thinking, oh, when I grow up, I want to be a refugee. Oh, when I grow up, I want to be an immigrant. Yeah, that's, that's never in the mind on anybody. Nobody. So, uh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, nobody grows up thinking. And you, you try to make this point to people when they start talking about these mobs of people invading the country. And you're like, really, dude, would you get up in the morning and go, you know, I lost my job and, I, you know, my cat is sick. And you know what I really want to do is get rid of every little thing that I have, pack up my kids with no knowledge. I, I think I'll move to Denmark. It's got to be better there. You would never. You just would not. Um, you wouldn't do it. And I, I picked Denmark, but I probably shouldn't have because they speak English there. We don't speak <laughs> such good Spanish here. Um, but but when you hear people now talking about immigrants, what what is the part? I mean, what's your... Well, I guess there are a lot of people talk about it a lot of different ways. But when you hear different conversations about immigrants and immigration, what are some of the things that you experience and... and how do you respond? I have been called many names, like especially if I go on Twitter and, and express my point of view, or if, if I if I make a post about uh, uh, my 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 stories being being on the radio, but being being undocumented, I get a lot of hate response. You know, and, and I used to engage with those people, but I learned that some people are just trying to provoke you, and they don't want to have a conversation. 
So with the, with the people that do want to have a conversation, I'm willing to sit down and have a conversation. And we could, uh, you can have your point of view, and I will respect it. I, I'd rather respect somebody more that comes to my face and tells me I hate you because you came to this country and documented. That somebody who pretends to be my friend and behind my back is talking things about my community. That's a good you know? attitude about it. I, I will I will make my little true confession of me not being politically totally on the program that happened a couple weeks ago. Um, a friend of mine does refugee work, and he was talking about a family that came um, with with uh, temporary protected status from Haiti. And uh, they live in a very—they came to a very expensive state, to California, and the wife is pregnant. So um, he was explaining that he's helping them find a place to live, and he's helping with this agency find all support services, and he's making sure that she gets enrolled in Medicare so that their medical bills will be paid for for the baby. And part of me thinks, absolutely, everybody should have that. And then part of me feels for the people who work so hard— and can't get health care benefits. And I know that the right response is, let's make sure everybody has those benefits. There's also a part of me that understands why people feel frustrated. I, I understand both things. And it's, it's you know, you, you want to say, I don't, I don't, the heck with you, you know, don't you have any sympathy? But it's more complicated than that when you see people struggling, 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 losing their homes to pay medical bills, and someone with temporary protected status with nothing is gets services, and there's, you know, there is no easy answer. Yeah, what, 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 what I usually find out is that people that are complaining about immigrants, and they are saying that we should be helping the homeless, they're really not doing anything for the homeless. That's a good point. Yeah, what are you doing? Yeah, if you're doing something to help the homeless community, if you're doing something to help the veterans, then yes, you have a point. We should be helping everybody. But if you're just complaining about one community but not helping the other, then what would you, what you're doing is just complaining. That's the best answer I've heard on this one. Thank you for that. I'm glad I brought it to you because that's a good, that's a really good answer. You know, you don't get to complain if you're not actually doing something to change the situation. Yeah, if you're not part of the solution, you're part of the problem. Well, I've, I have been hearing that one for a while, but I think you just illustrated it beautifully. Let's go to Paul in Seattle. Paul, welcome. You're on WCPT with me, Turi Ryder and Nestor Gomez. Yeah, yeah, thank you. I, I wanted to ask about how you tell a story, and I'm thinking about literary forms, uh, classic forms of stories, many of which you can find in the Bible, for instance. You know, uh, Isaac met his wife at a well. Jacob met his wife at a well. Jesus met the Samaritan woman at a well. And then in terms of immigration, you have the, uh, Mary and Joseph and the baby Jesus had to flee to Egypt to seek refuge from Herod's persecution. So there's these uh, forms of stories. Uh, you know, Shakespeare never wrote anything original. He just borrowed folk tales. And then those are the stories that everybody knows. And then the plot is how he tells the story. So, okay, Paul. So you you have a question, which is how Nestor learned the craft of storytelling, right? How do you, how do you think? I've got two questions. I have. How do you think about telling the story with regard to like literary form? And are literary forms kind of universal through the throughout cultures, or are there different literary forms? Both good cultures? questions. I will I will hand those off to Nestor. Nestor. <laughs> yes. Uh, yes. Uh, so the the first point of your question: there are different forms of storytelling. There is a historical story, storytelling. There's a fictional storytelling. There are folk folk tales. 
and there are also personal narratives, which is what I do. I tell stories about my own experience, about the, the things that happened to me and, the, and how I felt about those things. Um, if, if we see storytelling as a form, as an art, as a, as, 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 as a literary form, I think that we do because uh, many traditions, many things that happen to different cultures, to different people, were passed generation to generation through storytelling. Before there was any writing form, people just would tell the stories of what happened at the world, what happened to their ancestors, and they would, have, they would pass the stories through generations and generations. What, what, what I'm doing now, my personal narrative, are things that happen to me, like I say, in real life. Like, like I, like I, like the story that I told about uh, learning to learning English by watching TV. Uh, amazingly, I had told a story at different places, and different people come to me and say, like, yeah, I also came to this country and I learned a bunch of uh, a bunch of words and a bunch of things by watching this show, or by watching that show, or by doing this, or by buying. Um, there, there used to be this uh, this uh, system of learning to speak English that uh, it, w- it was very famous within the Latin American community. English uh, in Barreras was called. And a lot of people, like as soon as, a lot of Latin people, as soon as you mentioned, oh, my mom used to buy English in Barreras. As soon as you mentioned that people who are transported to the, back to the 80s and listening to those commercials about English in Barreras, how people needed to learn to speak English and buy English in Barreras. Uh, basically in, in okay, English so now or, I have to know, does it work? Uh, I, 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 we were never ever able to afford it because it was like, like a whole system. Oh. But, uh, but some people, like, like some people will buy it and make, uh, bootlegged copies. Of <laughs> and course. Tell you, like chapter number one or chapter number two. Uh, so we got our hands on a couple of chapters and, and we used them for a little bit, but. <laughs> okay. <laughs> you take what you can get. Let me ask yeah, you, um. What was well? I'm I'm guessing you may tell a story about this, but what were some of the greatest acts of kindness that you experienced? And because um, you've you've spoken about some of the harsh treatment and the hate speech, but what were some of the moments where you almost could could believe your mother that this was like the greatest country in the world? Did you have a couple? Oh, I had a lot of a lot of times where I am grateful to be living in this country. You know, don't don't. I don't want you to think that I'm ungrateful. Either. Oh, no, I don't think that. I just want a story. I'm trying to get a, yeah. your stories out of you because they're so good. Yeah, well, I have uh, stories about uh, my first job, uh, how how difficult my first job. I have stories about how having to quit a job because I didn't get paid enough and being able to find another job. I have stories about... Uh, People helping me find my way, you know. When, would you would you tell to... one? Would you just we've got like take ten minutes if you can, or less, or and tell tell one one of the lovely, you know, this was a great moment for me. Would you do that? Ooh, I will. I will have to pick one. Uh, give me a couple of minutes to. to, to okay, I I will give you a couple of minutes to think of one or to read one if you prefer. Um, can you talk and think at the same time? Yes, yes, yes. Okay. While you're thinking, so I'm going to ask you, um, who are your favorite groups of people to tell stories to and with? Mm, That is a very complicated question because it depends on the the story that I'm telling. For example, I told stories to uh, I told one story at an event near the border and I was telling a story about crossing the border. And then people that have crossed the border and documented came to me, I'm like, I cannot imagine that somebody talk about this because we had this and we never speak about it. 
And I also tell stories about um, things that happen in my life, things that are difficult in my life. And people that are going through the same problems will come to me and say, we really appreciate the story because we're living through the same moment. So it is, it, uh, it, you know, when you talk about what's, what's my favorite story or where's my favorite place to tell a story, it's difficult because it's like, if you have kids and they ask you, who's your favorite kid? It's really hard to say, well, those and such is my favorite because okay. you, you love this. So all your all your audiences are like your favorite kids. I get it. Do you hang around after you tell a story just to see what will happen, or do you exit and and do the next thing? I I know that you lead some storytelling events, but when when you're just the one coming to tell, do you, do you look forward to the time when you can talk to the people after, or are you just drained and you would like to be private away? No, I, I usually stick around uh, one because. People usually want to talk to you about it, and also because there's usually other people telling stories. And I want to be respectful to them and to their stories and be able to listen to them, enjoy what they had to say, and probably even learn from one, from the story they, they, they are sharing. That makes sense. And um, who are, what are some of the favorite stories that you hear that you listen to? Any particular kinds of stories that you're like, oh, you know, that, that one made an impact on me? Yeah, usually uh, personal narratives are my favorite kind of stories. Uh, and there's so many amazing stories, storytellers here in Chicago. Like when I started telling stories, um, I used to story when I was a kid. So I started telling stories as a way to get over my fear of public speaking. Um, since I used to story when I was a kid, and then when I came to the United States, I started even more because of having to learn a new language and a new country. And I only got over my stuttering by forcing myself to talk mm-hmm. uh, because I, I got married, I had two kids, and I had to like go out and get a job. So I had to talk to people. So by forcing myself to talk, I started to control my stuttering. I still stutter from time to time, but I was always afraid of public speaking. So I went to an event when there was a storytelling event, and I put my name in the hat as a way to get over my fear of public speaking. And it was going to be one of those things where you, you know, like, like a bucket list. Yeah. I did it, I'm done, it's over. But I went one time to a storytelling event and I just fell in love with it. And I've been doing it for, for, for eight years now. So you didn't die on the spot and you didn't get struck by lightning and you didn't open your mouth and have nothing come out. And so it was all right then. You knew you could do it. Yes, yes, and I actually fell in love with the art form, and I just continued telling stories. That is lovely. So you uh, mentioned in um, some of your narrative about yourself that, like many um, immigrant kids, you ended up being the interpreter for your family. And I know some people who have been in that position, and it can be really, really difficult. Um, and and um, you tell the story in your um about being asked to go get directions from someone? Yes, uh, yes like uh, like every immigrant kid, as soon as you learn a few words in English, your parents think that you know everything. So you become the official translator. And that happened also to me and my siblings. We became translators for, for our parents. And in one occasion, we went on a sightseeing through Chicago, and we got lost. And my mom decided, oh, to send me to, to ask a policeman for directions. And... I didn't know that much English, and I stuttered, so I, I, I couldn't really argue with my mom because every time I tried to argue, she would win because I stuttered and she wouldn't. So instead of arguing with my mom, I decided, okay, I'm just going to walk ahead. I'm going to go over there and pretend that I'm talking to the policeman. <laughs> and that's what I did. I just pretended I was talking to, to the policeman, and then I went back and just gave my mom some made-up directions, 
And we got lost really badly. We got lost really badly in the bank. Yeah, you can. That only works, you know, for the audience of one, your mother. Did she ever figure out that you actually hadn't spoken to the police then, or did she just think that you'd gotten the directions wrong or he'd given wrong directions? Uh, there are things that I haven't really uh, that I I I, I kept from my mom because even uh, even at my age now, when I'm, I'm I'm 50 years old, my mom was still get the chancla and. Ah, the chancla. I know yeah. about the chancla. I do. For, could you explain the chancla to people who don't don't know about the chancla? Yeah, the chancla is basically the sandal. Our, our mothers usually wear sandals around the house. And sometimes when we upset our mother, she'll grab the, the sandal and they feed you with it. Yeah. They throw it at you. And, and when they throw it at you, they're like ninjas. They yeah. could throw the sandal and hit you from really far away. Yeah, so the chancla is like a, a universal thing among people of color. That uh, as, as soon as you hear about the chancla, and and see, and that's that's what happened with stories. I, I might be relating an event, and as soon as I mention something, people are like, "Oh, I know exactly what you're talking about." Well, and that makes a bridge between my experience and your experience. The bridge for me with la chancla. Somebody put up a video. I don't know if you've seen this about why um, Mexican American children are so well behaved. Um, and it's, it's this whole like at home learning system that's called La Chancla. And, and essentially when it shows all the children doing like little forms of misbehaving, um, and, and then out of nowhere, like a ninja star <laughs> and it goes around corners and it finds them where nobody can find them and it knocks the bad thing out of their hand. And they, um, and that was how I learned about La Chancla. But, but again, like my, my girlfriend who, um, uh, came also from Guatemala. She, uh, I said, now this this thing, this video, La Chancla, and she just collapsed. She just collapsed on the ground. She's like, oh, yeah, La Chancla. We all lived through that. And I, I think that when you share these kinds of experiences with people in any storytelling, you make a video, you stick it on YouTube, all of a sudden there's a point of contact, not just in the community, but there's a bridge in for people like me who didn't grow up with La Chancla. We grew up with, what did we grow up with? Um, you will lose your privileges. That was, oh. <laughs> you will lose your, which was hilarious because we didn't really have that many privileges to begin with. We're like, par- pardon me? Uh, no, the the the, the, the kids nowadays, what they usually get is like, go to your room. You don't have a five minute timeout. And then they go to the room where they have the internet and they have the the video games and yeah. they have everything. That's right. Yeah. Thank you. Please send me to my room. Absolutely, I'll go. Yeah. Just don't make me sit here with all of y'all. Just uh, yeah. Please yeah. send me to my room. Yeah. I thought it was pretty funny. You're going to lose your privileges. I'm like, what? What privileges exactly? The part where I clean the house or the part? Wait, which of these privileges exactly am I losing? Um, but it, you know, it is, it is that I think I would have been better off with La Chancla. There would have been less opportunity to argue with it, I think. Although now that you mention it, I have this job because I learned how to argue. So there you go. Um, so did you pick a story that you want to share? I have one. I have one. one. Okay. I'm ready. Okay. My mother came into the apartment screaming. What did I tell you? She looked at me, her teenage son and my two younger brothers. I look at my brothers trying to figure out what she was talking about. Did we forget to do something she had told us before she left for work? Wash the dishes? Take out the garbage? Take a shower? I told you to stop horsing around. The neighbors have been complaining about the noise. Now we have to move. What am I supposed to do now? She asked. Two years prior, two years before, 
she had a ride to the United States. She had rented a one tiny bedroom studio, and after working like a maniac for two years, she had saved every penny to bring me and my siblings to the United States. For the last two months since we arrived, we have been living in her tiny studio apartment, unknown to her building manager. But a constant games of soccer, tag, and wrestling had caused so much noise that the neighbors have reported her. And now we were being evicted. We don't have anything, our mother screamed at us. All the furniture, the stove, even the bed, everything came with this apartment. What am I supposed to do now? She repeated with tears of anger in her eyes. The next day at work, my mother found out that a co-worker had decided he had enough of the American dream. He was going back to Mexico and was looking for someone to buy his old furniture. My mother agreed to buy the old furniture, but also as a condition that we could move into his old place. I don't care, he said, I'm moving out anyway. But the next week, my siblings, my mother and I say goodbye to the tiny studio apartment and we all move all the way to the other side of the city to a new two-bedroom apartment. We were still inspecting the old furniture when a middle-aged white man came into the apartment. Hello, quienes son ustedes? Who are you? He asked in broken Spanish. Nosotros? Who are you? My mother asked in English. I'm the landlord, he responded. We are the new tenants, my mother said, smiling on her broken, with her broken English. No, 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 no. That's not how it works. You're supposed to go to an interview. I don't even know you, the landlord says, freaking out. What are you going to do? Kick us out? My mother asked. Fine, the landlord answered. I'll give you three months so you can find another place. Three months, lady. That's it. The apartment was awesome. It was much bigger than a tiny studio and even had a yard. A yard! My brothers and I started playing soccer in the yard every day. But with the games of soccer, come broken windows. Oh. And at the end of three months, the landlord had had enough of us. I want you and your soccer playing, window breaking, glass destroying kids out of this apartment. The landlord screamed at my mother. My mother begged for a little bit more time so he could find, so, so we could find another place. After a while, the landlord agreed. Fine, I'll give you three more months, he said. But after that, I want you out, out, out. We lived 10 years in that apartment. <laughs> In fact, my brother and I finished high school, got married, and moved out. But my brother, my mother didn't move out until she managed to save enough money to buy her own place. A couple of years ago, I was driving for Uber, and I was driving around the old neighborhood, and I happened to drive past the apartment. I stopped to see the grass we had killed with our soccer games had grown back in the old yard. To my surprise, the yard was now a parking lot and the old apartment had been turned into condominiums. But the old landlord was still there. Hey, did you remember me? I asked him. Of course I remember you, he said, shaking my hand. I'm glad your mother got her own place, he added smiling. Yeah, I said. She bought her own house. Have you broken a lot of windows there? Yes. <laughs> Let me ask you a question, I, 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 I told him in reply. Why do you put... Why do you put up with us for so long? Your mother, he said. 
She was always working, working, working. You guys were, you guys were new here. Couldn't even speak English. Your mother was never late with the rent money. She was always working, working, working. I kept telling your mother that I needed her to move two months, six months, but her spirit and determination and hard work always won me over. You know, your mother reminded me a lot about my own mother, how she came from the old country and went through so much difficult to provide for me and my family. The immigrant spirit of your mother reminded me of my mother's immigrant spirit. I said goodbye to him and I walk away. There was nothing else to say because I knew exactly what he meant. That's so beautiful. I'm applauding again. That's from uh, your book, Your Driver Has Arrived, right? You read from that from your new book, right? No, that's, uh, that's, that's one of the stories that I told uh, at different events. I have, I have told so many stories. Oh, my gosh. And so we should feel especially fortunate because that one you can't even buy in a book. That's just special for WCPT. I'm even more honored. Thank you. You know, you raise a really good point. I think it's very it's I think if we really think about it, except for the indigenous people who have an entirely different story of being here, those of us who aren't indigenous, at some point there was someone who came with nothing and built a life. And if we can connect to that, I I think that a broken window or two looks like a a small price to pay to offer the the way forward that was offered to us in this place. Can Can you hold on another moment or two, Nestor? All right. In a moment more of Nestor Gomez, Nestor the Boss Gomez, master storyteller, published author of uh, your, oh gosh, I'm going to blow it. Your driver has arrived. Um, And now that you've heard him tell a story, you see why I'm such a fan. Um, This is Edwin Eisendrath's show, and this is WCPT Radio, Chicago's Progressive Talk. This is WCPT 820, where facts matter. You're listening to The Big Picture with Edwin Eisentraff on WCPT 820. It is Chicago's Progressive Talk, WCPT. I am Turi. That's T-U-R-I, writer, like the talk, in for Edwin. Uh, if you want to follow me, I'm on Twitter. I'm on Facebook. Uh, you can find my podcast. You can find my book. Just put the name in there and see what happens. You never really know. And while we're naming people, I want to thank Paul Shivari, who is uh, personing the controls for us today and made sure that I didn't completely fall all over myself and explode. Uh, also, Matt Cummings for inviting me and uh, for Mr. Eisendrath for allowing me to keep his chair warm. Have I thanked everybody I'm supposed to thank? I hope so. If I left you out, let me know and I'll get it right next time. Richie Z, by the way, will be coming up just after four and you won't want to miss that show either. Nestor, welcome. Thank you. I all of all praise to you for being willing to give me an hour on your Saturday. Oh, uh, it's been so much. It's you know, this is the most fun thing about having a radio show, even if I'm borrowing it. You get to pick out all the people you want to meet and talk to and invite them and it's like kind of a, you know, a free pass to to meet. It's a free pass to meet the people you want to meet anyway. Um, oh, cool. Sounds like a dream come true. Well, it is actually. You were when we, when I called you first, and you said, "Well, maybe I should get a talk show." And I said, "Maybe you should." 
maybe you should. Did um, did the media, other than learning English from um, from movies and TV, were there any other kinds of media that were really helpful to you in acclimating to America or stuff from school? What what were the tools that helped you find your way? Well, sadly, no, because uh, as you know, well, maybe you're not, you don't know because you're probably younger than me, but in the mid-80s, there was no internet, there was no Google, there was no... I'm not younger than you. I'm not. <laughs> you know, like, uh, it's funny, uh, I, uh, my wife and I, we, we, we moved to a new house in Royal Park, Chicago, uh, a year ago, and I remember looking at the house, and it's nice and everything, you know, but as, as I was looking around, I noticed the cable connections and the, and the phone inputs, and it made me wonder, like, kids nowadays will see us and be like, what are those for? <laughs> it's really fast. It happens really fast. I'll, I'll tell you one of those stories. We were fixing up our house in uh, San Francisco, and the contractor said, well, do you want to wire the house so that you can have your stereo all, all over the house? And and we said, sure, yes, that'd be fun. We love music and we can put speakers. And, and so they put this wiring inside the wall and it's, it kind of stuck out of the wall and it happened so fast, and these guys were so slow, that by the time we moved back into our house, we're like, we can get wireless speakers. We know, what, what are these? <laughs> they, oh, God, just man. stuff to trip over. So, But when we went to sell the house, like 10 years later, we're like, these, these wires are still sticking out of the walls. We, we're used to looking at We drilled holes. We pushed the wire back behind the wall. We closed oh, it up God. again. I know, because what's the point? What, what really yeah. is the point? And... I just, we looked at each other and laughed. Like, what next? What is the next thing that we're going to have to have that's state of the art, that we're paying good money to make it, you know, cutting edge? And literally a year later, like, who needs this? What do you, what do you need this for? Like, this is of zero use and cost me a bundle and for nothing. So, yeah, I'm with you on that. The, the, I still have that, uh, I still have the little buses for the, for the phone, uh, line here. Just to waiting for one kid to be like, what is that for? And I'll be like, oh, that's to charge the phone. And then he tried to like charge his cell phone on, on it. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that, I, I, you want my archaic uh, technology saves me though? I, every now and then the old technology will save you. Um, yes. I would just, it's how I got here. They asked me if I had um, a cassette of political talk because mostly what I'd done was like fun and games and lifestyle talk for the last, I don't want to say how many decades. So I had to go into the closet and get the box of old cassettes. And I had no working cassette player. And apparently cassettes are popular again. And I went to count them four used junk stores, like two Salvation Armies and a Brown Elephant and every other used thing store. And um, finally, I remembered I had this thing that my father... My father had died of Alzheimer's, and before he died, he took stuff apart for no good reason before we diagnosed him. It was part of his illness, but we didn't know. And I'd been really upset because he took apart this beautiful cassette player. And there it was, and I thought, well, maybe, just maybe, I can get it together. My father was no longer living. He's been dead two years now. And I, I managed to just kind of place the pieces together just enough that I could get it to work. And I was able to play a cassette with political talk and put it in the computer and digitize it so that I could be here talking to you today, Nestor. And I thought to myself, thanks, Dad. Yeah, that's, yeah. That's beautiful. That's beautiful because putting back together the the, the radio, someone like putting back together the memories of you, 
Oh, you're done. Well, yeah. And, be, and, and when I remembered how annoyed I was to see that he had taken it all apart before anybody, and I'd just kind of thrown it in the closet like, this was a good thing, but I'm not, I'm not going to throw it out, but I'm sure as heck not going to fix it. Rot, 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 rot. And then, you know, you, did you ever get one of those gifts from your parents that you didn't realize was a gift till later? With just oh, a minute God. left, but I'm just curious. My I have a jacket in my closet that this is one of the very few times that my, 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 my father was really cheap. He, he wouldn't spend any money. And this one time he was like, oh, I ordered a jacket for, for you for Christmas. You're going to love it. It's amazing. I was like, I was thinking this really cool jacket, like a Michael Jackson jacket or whatever, you know. And then he gave me this this leather, black leather jacket that looked like a country jacket, you know, like 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 the jacket of the... <laughs> That the country starts with, uh-huh. and I look at him and I'm like, and I, I just couldn't. I like, I usually would like really reserve around my dad because he would kick my head, you know, he would <laughs> whoop me, and I was like, this is the most horrible thing I ever seen. And he got so mad at me, he's like, I'm never gonna buy you anything again. He never did. <laughs> but you have that jacket. I have the jacket in my closet. I never wear it, but I cannot throw it away. I'm like, this is the jacket my dad gave me. Like, it's just there, you know, it's like, it means a lot to me, even though I never wore it. I mean, it's an ugly jacket, <laughs> but it's there. It's country, but he tried. It's country, but he tried. Nestor, thank you so much for spending time on WCPT. I look forward to the next time I get to hear you tell stories live and in person. And for people who want to follow Nestor, the best place to find him is NestorGomezStoryteller.com. That's all one word, right? N-E-S-T-O-R-G-O-M-E-Z, Storyteller.com. I hope I've got that right. Or you can just Google him, Nestor Gomez, and it'll all come to you and you should go to him and see what a wonderful storyteller he is and enjoy it. Thanks again for making me welcome. Edwin will be back next week. This is Chicago's Progressive Talk, WCPT.